You're listening to a Mutiny Transmission. You can find more podcasts, videos, books, comics, and records online at mutinyinfocafe.com. Or just stop in the store in Denver and have a coffee sometime. Welcome to episode number 96 of the motherfucking podcast. This is, of course, the official podcast of the International Power Rock Combo, motherfucking ruckus, from Denver and Chicago, respectively. respectively. I'm Aaron Howell. I'm Gordo. Gordo, it's good to see you, man. It's good to see you. There was a hell of a uh, hell of a bit of a traffic getting up here today, just coming in a little bit later. Up by Sloan's Lake, there was an accident. Are we at that point? Have you guys ever seen anyone impaled or? before? You saw somebody impaled? Uh, no, I haven't either. But there was a bad accident up by uh, Sloan's Lake, and it was just—it was just kind of a fender bender. It was nothing. It was no big deal. Right. But. I think I thought I saw somebody impaled once. Like I, um, when I was a teenager, somebody crashed into the Blockbuster Video over by my house. Uh, by the way, for the younger audience, Blockbuster Video was a place that you could go and rent movies on these things called cassettes, cassette tapes, or uh, later DVDs, and you could put them in a machine at home, and you didn't need to stream them. Yeah, they were big. Yeah, they were big ones. But they also had the Betamax. Yeah, I, I see, Betamax right. was before my time. I did watch uh, Little Big Man with Dustin Hoffman on Betamax in school once, but that was like the only time I ever watched anything on Betamax. So if you were lucky enough to have Betamax, they always had more of selection of Betamax in the store because not everyone had Betamax. Really? Everyone had VHS. So chances on getting uh, yeah, the movie yeah. you wanted, you know, the shop maybe had 10 copies of Big, right. three copies of beta, uh, Big on Beta. It's like it, you know. it's like Blu-ray. Like at the end of DVD, you could go in, like uh, like well at the end of Blockbuster, you could go in and you could get Blu-rays more accessibly than you could get. Right. That DVDs. was a, that was a deal with Betamax. We didn't have Betamax, but the movie you wanted was always, always there, Betamax. but it was in Betamax. VHS was gone. <laughs> Dude, Is there any way to make it work? And then some of the shops ago, like when I first started doing videos and video editing in college. It was, it was just on Betamax? stacks of videotape. No, like VHS, but it was just stacks and stacks. And you're just like, well, I think that shot is on number 12. I think I remember and, that. Yeah. I went to, um, what do you call it? The, uh, was it, it wasn't CICS. What was the, um, what was the, the school over on, uh, like you could, you could leave school and go over to that other school that was on federal over by the, the Safeway. And they had like a film program there, like it was an extracurricular thing. And really, I just did it so I could smoke pot yeah, to fuck and fuck off yeah. and fuck off. But we did like I think all the video editing was done on VHS there too. Jerry actually was really good at editing with just two VCRs. Oh wow, I bet he was. Yeah, like he would have he would have two VCRs side by side and would do like live edits by just hitting pause and like play and start. So like you'd watch home movies and they'd have like every cut would have that like little burst of of static in between and i i don't know i thought it was kind of cool that that was you know he did like total caveman analog that's og mixtape that is right OG there. Mixed that tape. is og mixtape but if your parents were really rich 
You had a laser disc player. So my dad had a. And it always starts with my dad whenever you mention laser <laughs> yeah. disc players, because my dad too. Yeah. My dad had a copy of Jurassic Park on laser disc for years, and we never got a laser disc player. He just like he was going to get one, and then he was like, "I'm going to get on top of it. I'm going to make sure I get Jurassic Park." before anyone else can. So the second Jurassic Park came out on Laserdisc, my dad went out and bought it, and it just sat on a shelf in our basement for seriously 20 years. Does he still have it? He might. He might still have it somewhere. You never took the discs to somebody else's house to watch? No, it just sat there in the shrink wrap because it, it uh, it got replaced by DVD eventually. Sure. But my dad thought... Well, I think it even went out kind of went out before DVD even came around. Right. I mean, it, it was either too expensive or too big. It's impractical. Yeah, you know. Like, people aren't going to keep movies like they keep LPs. And, you, the, and the video store had such a small selection oh, nothing. of laser discs. Yeah, nothing whatsoever. I worked at Blockbuster Video for a minute. Like, probably literally a minute. I, maybe a week. And then... I called in. I wanted to go to a party or something, so I called in and said that my grandma died, and then I never went back again. That old, that old excuse. Yeah, and both my grandmas are alive and well to this day. Like, right. Yeah, and yeah. They know better, especially at Blockbuster. <laughs> no, I they're mean, like, nobody wants to work here. That's a here. slacker crew. <laughs> we get it. One of the best things I ever saw done with a VHS cassette was a guy I went to school with, he would keep his stash of blunts in a hollowed-out, VHS cassette tape. Very smart. Yeah. So he would, he would, you know, he would take the spools out, but then he would, he would, uh, I guess he would like black out the, um, what do you call it? The window. The window. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then just fill it with blunts and like pop it open and he'd sell you a blunt for five bucks a piece. And we'd just, you know, oh, we got to find Tommy. Tommy, can I buy a couple blunts from you? And he'd be like, hell yeah, man. Go into his room and he. Oh, yeah. You know where I hid my drugs? Where? You know, in the record player, the disc washer wood handle, you know, velvet. Damn, that is a good idea. So inside the dishwasher, inside the box for the dishwasher, uh, dishwasher, dishwasher. Dishwasher. There is the little little liquid you squirt on the vinyl. Right. You know, it kind of stores inside that brush. You kept it filled with with LSD. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So you'd take the, the liquid out and you could put your drugs in there. But there was this little brush came with it that kind of held the liquid in place inside that disc washer. Right, 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 right. And that would kind of hold your stash in place. <laughs> you put it back in the box, sits right up on your record player. Yeah, no one's going to look there. Yeah, in plain sight. You know what? I did um, did that for 20 years. You put years. your weed in there. My dad being a, a cop and all, things. you would think that I would have to <clears throat> like really get inventive with my drug hiding spots. But like... Unless I had something sitting on the windowsill, my dad d- had no idea. Was it? He was just he oblivious? Didn't want to know. Yeah, yeah. Was it <sighs> no. Like, co- cop's son, no way he's going to do this, or I, he's going to do this. I don't want to know. There is a, there is a, there are miles between a police officer and a detective. You know, a police officer is like <laughs> trained to like recognize the smell of pot or trained to like like recognize like if a case of cocaine spilled open in front of my dad, I think he might know what it was. But like at that point, like I even had just I was just like playing with 
pipe fittings and I like made a pipe that I never used and I like kept it out on on the windowsill and my dad, you know, thought he had busted me cold with what he what my dad called a hash pipe. Like he literally called it a hash pipe. Of course pipe. he did, right. Yeah, yeah. And um dope pipe. That's he, where you put your dope. <laughs> he's like, I found your hash pipe on the windowsill yeah. and it's like my hash pipe? I've never seen where to get hash. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. What is this? What is this? The UK in nineteen sixty eight? Like right. I have no idea how but but as far as like uh like having like a bong or something like that, you know, I, I just would keep it under my bed. Or um the mo- the most I did was I would take and um hide stuff in the hole in the wall where the the master water shutoff was. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? You could stash stuff down there, like tape it against the wall, like duct tape or whatever. But I also didn't really – I never had money for drugs, and I never really had money for booze, so I didn't really have anything to keep in the house in the first place. Well, we had cigarettes. Right. Porno mags. Yeah. Things like that. We had these rafters in the basement, and I was smart, and I put them above the rafters. Oh, that's a good you know. place. But then you you know you forget which rafter and you're. There's lots of good up. places at the basement. Basement's yeah. a good spot. I mean, maybe my parents knew. I don't. They just never went down there. Yeah, I basements mean, are for bad, doing bad things. I got I got caught doing dumb stuff. Like I got caught doing a lot of stuff. But I think I what I got caught for was the tip of the iceberg. You know, of, of and then there was just this whole world of stuff below the surface that I never got caught. So, with. so wait, why don't you introduce the guest, and then I'm gonna I have a question about escape routes. Oh yes, the guest. Oh yeah. Let's introduce the guest. Please welcome to the show uh, a, an amazing musician, uh, one of the owners of the Oriental Theater. I would say the face of the Oriental Theater for sure. From 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 a branding standpoint, definitely the. The pasty face of the Oriental Theater, the um, uh, uh, hired gun bass player, bass master general, in fact, um, plays with our side project, White Fudge, uh, plays for the samples. You're also the tour manager for the samples, correct? And then uh, has played for a bunch of different bands, including like played for Doug Kershaw at one point. Right, still do. Do you still play for Doug Kershaw? I'm playing in Canada in June. That's really fucking cool, man. Yeah, um, really cool. And then aside from that, one of my favorite humans just in life in general. Thanks, and that, man. <laughs> that's a true thing, dude. Like you're one of my favorite people out there. Thanks, and man. and I, I speak very highly of you. Please welcome my good friend and colleague and bandmate. And a real sweetheart of a guy, please welcome Andy Burkaw to the show. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to be here, and I'm sorry it took so long. No, I'm glad you're here, man. It, it took You've been ex- asking me for a long time. Well, you, you arrived at a good moment, though. Yeah, you, you did. You arrived at the best moment we've because, had so far. Because we've only started successfully live streaming the shows pretty recently. And you came on to the show when we've actually started... We've developed something of a following. I mean, we don't have thousands of subscribers or thousands of viewers or anything, but we're getting to the point where like people are like watching and listening to the show with with fairly decent regularity and consistency. So you came at a good time. Well, I think people are starting to understand podcasts a little bit more, right? And get excited about them, right? Right. And it's it's um, the the uh, the form has has definitely spread a great deal within just the last couple of years. I mean, it's it's been around for a long time. You know, podcasts have been been around for probably 10, 10 15 years now. Sure. Yeah, 15 years generously. 
Actually, maybe maybe even longer than that. I wonder, probably, I remember hearing about podcasts going on when I was probably like 23 or something like that. So maybe like 15 years. Yeah, I think, I think there were some radio shows that put episodes on the internet. Right. And like the mid-aughts in there. That, that's, you know? that's what I'd heard of, things like This American Life. Right, things yeah. like that. But that was, I, had, that I, I hadn't heard of podcasts until about five. It's the years gateway ago. drug. Yeah. <laughs> the gateway. Yeah, yeah, this American Life. Well, it's, I, it's a great one too. Yeah, it's awesome. Still good. I always just liked playing radio show, and this is and and this is like I just think it's amazing that we live in a time where like I can have my own radio show. I can have my own TV show. You know, with my friends, which is like like coming full circle to like what. Nian Logan and and his brother Marshall used to do as kids just sitting at home and making music videos and making radio shows and stuff like that and now like you can do it and actually get it to other people with fairly minimal effort despite what you know are set up today speaking <laughs> of kids I want to go back to what we were talking about earlier who who had what like what were your escape routes like when you were sneaking out of the house when you were a kid so my dad installed so I got I got my own room at one point. My dad in the basement. In the basement, I got my lucky own room in the kid. basement. Oh, it was so cool. Yeah, that that's is just asking for trouble. Yeah, I know. that's a lucky break right there. I didn't get a door though for <laughs> quite some time. In fact, my dad got me a door for my birthday. It just one hadn't year. been framed out, or it was by design. It well, no, they just hadn't installed the door. And then after that, I had a door without a knob on it for a while. And really, it came from the fact that my dad is not very handy at all. Like, my dad cut all the power to the house once, like trying to wire in a light switch. Like, he had a service person come over to the house to fix something with the, the, the central air. And the, the service person was like, the, the, the guy was just like, well, Mr. Howell, actually, it's something really easy. You know, you don't have to pay me to come out and do a service call. I It's just a screw and a screwdriver, and you can do this yourself. And my dad told the guy, he was like, sir, if I try to do that, there will be a smoking crater where my house once stood. He's <laughs> like, I will gladly pay for the service call. That's smart. So my dad just wasn't very handy. So it just took him a long time to get around to installing the door and then even longer to get around to installing the doorknob. And I was lazy and on drugs, so I didn't do it myself either. But, um, but yeah, he did have installed a, um, a security window that basically if a fire broke out, you could pull down on a couple of, of chains and and sneak out that way. And, you know, he warned me when he put it in. He's like, if you try and sneak out of this, I'll slam your nuts in it, you know. And I snuck out through it nervously a couple of times. And then I started to realize that my parents are hard of hearing and can sleep through a bus crash. So by the time I was 17. Were it two stories up or was it a one story one up? One story up, okay. Yeah. And so instead of going through the window at a certain point, I just started going out the front door. Like I would wait till they went to sleep and then I would go out the front door. And there was like, my mom, bless her heart, so wanted to believe that I was never up to no good. Yeah, you'd never, yeah. Right. So, you know, when I got arrested and she got a call from the police saying that they had her son and they were taking him to jail, her response was, oh, no, not my son. He's downstairs asleep in bed. Oh, so this was upon sneaking out. You got arrested. Oh, yeah, yeah. You blew it. Yeah, I blew it. But, I mean, even after that, you know, they, dude, they, seriously, you could, I could have fallen down the stairs 
like I could have tumbled down the stairs with a serial murderer with an orchestra playing the soundtrack to the battle between me and the serial murderer, and my parents would have slept through the whole thing. So you continue to sneak out after that? Oh, yeah. I, I, I snuck out up until pretty much I turned 18, and the day I turned 18, I moved out of the house. Okay. Okay, so what was your escape route? Well, also a basement, but I lived on the you know, two-story house, so I lived on the second story. Ooh, la-di-da. Very fancy. <laughs> yeah. We were walking in high cotton. Yeah. Uh, I had to go downstairs, the main floor, to walk by my parents' bedroom because their bedroom was by the top of the stairs, but down a nice, quiet, carpeted stair, mm-hmm. through the kitchen, but down the creaky basement stairs. It was an unfinished basement. Not a big deal. Right. And then I'd have to get up on the tool bench to get up through the small, little, tiny little window up top. And we just, you know, I'd crank it open and slide on out. So you actually like had to sneak, yeah, sneak I had to, out. Yeah, I had to. Yeah, it was really sneaky. Which brings me to another thing. Uh, didn't you have to go to military school at one point? I did. I went to military school for <laughs> is, high school. Is that because you got caught sneaking out? That might have been part of it. Yeah. So you were sneaking out in middle school then? Um, I was. I was wow. pretty young. I was too afraid to sneak out in middle school. But we weren't doing anything. Yeah. You know, we weren't drinking. Maybe we were smoking cigarettes. We were... Meeting up and hanging around the neighborhood. Right. You know, we didn't go anywhere fun. No one had a car to pick us up. Right. I don't know what we were doing. That's how it started for we're me, screwing too. around. Dude, I never yeah. would have had the balls to sneak out. Like, but, I, was too, I was too scared of getting caught. Like, I was almost an adult the first time I snuck out. I remember sneaking out at 16 and just being terrified that I was I learned out. it from my big brother. Oh, and see, that's how I was I le- the that, big brother. How I learned the window trick was I remember sneaking beer out to him from the basement fridge through that window. <laughs> and then I realized I can get out this window. And I did it a number of times until one day or one night. I came home and I come in the window and I look up the stairs and I see through the cra- under the crack of the door, the kitchen light on. And I was like, oh, I'm screwed. I'm caught, I'm busted. So I just went to my hangout area in the basement, sat on the couch. And waited. And waited. And I eventually just gave up, and I walked upstairs. And of course, my mom is sitting on the at the kitchen table with my stepdad, and biding her time. And I don't remember what happened from there. They were not happy. <laughs> and I don't know what kind of trouble I got in, but I, you know, did the walk of, walk of shame up those stairs and walk of shame to my bedroom, and I was pretty bummed out. They were upset, right? You know, what were you doing? And you. Tell them nothing. They're not going to believe you. Right, you're right. doing nothing. If you're sneaking out the window at one in the morning, why would you up, be sneaking you out if you're not no doing good. anything? Right. But God, honest, we weren't doing anything. Yeah, we were literally at the park. Yeah, I, I snuck out a lot to do nothing. I did for a long time. Oh. Didn't do anything but hang out at the park. That I, was it. I was always doing something when I was sneaking out. Yeah, and you could do that during the day, but that's just not as fun. Right. You know. No, it's there's nothing going on at the park in the daytime. No. And there, it's something to be said about you know just. This is that piece of freedom, you know. You right. just gave yourself that freedom. Feels good. Did you ever drink with a fake ID? I did drink with a fake ID. Where did you drink with your fake ID? I, you know, funny enough, while I was in military school, of I course. was in Lexington, Missouri. Right. And in Missouri at that time, there was three two bars. Oh. So we would go to, you know, an upperclassman would have a car. Right. And we would go to Warrensburg, Missouri, or... I think that was the, where we'd go, and there was two bars there, three two bars, the Paradise and the Star Bar. 
and you could get in for five bucks and, you know, Dixie cups, very cheap, you know, quarter beers, maybe dollar beers. And what year was this? Well, I graduated high school in 93. Oh, okay. no way. Yeah. Huh. So this would have been, this was probably that 92, 93 year when I was doing that. But we weren't 18 yet. So we would get in these 18 plus three, two bars with our mil- fake military school IDs that we'd make, and they'd take them. <laughs> of course. It's small town Missouri. Yeah, they'd take them. You know, and it's 93, so, you know. Yeah, it was a little bit different back then. Yeah, But yeah. that's how we got away with that. And we did that, you know, every weekend we had a furlough is what they call it. We got a weekend furlough, and we could be gone from, you know, Friday after school till Sunday at 11 or something. That's a lot of freedom for, for high school kids. Yeah, you had you had to, you know, be a junior senior year. Mm-hmm. You had to, I think parents had to sign off on it. Sign or off on it. Okay, it. Um, you had you couldn't have shitty grades. Right. You couldn't be a. It know, was a privilege you had to earn. It was a privilege you had to earn, and I think it, you know, certain ranks and above could go do that. Right. And I was high ranking in my junior and senior year. Didn't you? Um, just to pivot real quick. Didn't you and Doug Walker go to the same military school? We did. My 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 other bandmate from Monolith who we had on the yeah, show. Yeah, in fact, recently. I think he started the year after I graduated. Really? Did yeah. you guys really know each other, or you just kind of? No, we figured. I he posted a picture of himself in this Wentworth uniform. I was like, holy shit! Yeah, you know, and that's how we kind of put those pieces together. But it turns out that he, uh, one of my best friends, Brian Roberts, in military school was one year younger than me. We were roommates at one point. Right. He ended up, he was a senior when I think Doug came in at, to military school. And maybe Doug came in as a senior, I don't know. Right. But he got to know Brian because Brian was a musician, bass player as well. Right. And I think they started playing music together at military school. Oh, no way. So he must have been in the same company that we were in. So were you I, playing music when you were in military school? I was. That's where I first learned to play the bass. And in I, military school, really? And I only played... The, and I, in fact, I didn't play bass after military school for a long time. Right. I only played bass in military school because my the first year I was there, my roommate, Kurt Diaz, he's from Monterey, Mexico. He was this guitar extraordinary, you know, worshipped Stevie Vai and, you know, Cetriani and Ingve Malmsteen. Mm-hmm. And he was learning guitar very, very quickly. He had rich parents, and they got him an Ibanez gem with the handle and the roses up the neck. No and shit. The scalloped frets. Wow. <laughs> Kurt had all the cool toys. With the handle? The handle? Yeah, the handle. everything? Wow. It was this, you know, neon green and blue, and it's gorgeous. Anyhow, so we got paired as roommates, which couldn't have been more perfect. And, you know, we're miserable kids in military school, and no one wants to be there. Right. What else are you going to do? But he was this amazing guy that was just learning about American music in a big way because he's living in America. Now, had you been playing any music at all up to that point? Not really. This was like I, this was like the beginning. This beginning. was the beginning. Wow. I played a little guitar. I'd taken some lessons as a kid. My dad was a musician. Um, okay, so you were around it. Yeah, my big brothers played music. Okay. So anyhow, he said, you know, we need to jam. Me and you, we jam. And so we went to the music room at the school, and they had a really shitty old bass guitar with flat wound strings and it's cool now when I think back but at the time it was right, just right. like it was atrocious it was so embarrassing <laughs> so we jammed together then we met this cat named Levi Peckham who was an upperclassman at the school and he was a drummer 
So we put together this little combo. We talked to the music teacher. He let us practice um, during lunch and right. after school some days. And we'd play at the the football or the indoor games in the gym, you know, basketball and things like that. And so we'd play before and, you know, during breaks and just shred. That's where I learned to play the bass. He said, you have to play bass. So that's how I learned. How quickly did you pick it up? Really, really quick. Yeah. Mostly because of Kurt, because he would show me the, he'd show me the bass lines. He'd just play them on the guitar. And I just, I, man, I, we were so bored. We were so miserable. you just play all day. School. I mean, it's like, well, you don't play all day because you're getting your ass kicked all day. Right. You know, with school but in your or military regiment. But in your downtime. And we, you know, found time to have downtime. And a lot of it was just staying up all night. Right. Night guard would come through, make sure the, all the kids are sleeping. Then he's gone. And we're, we're jamming. But we, so we got these um, Rockmen. Remember, Gordo, remember the Rockmen? You could plug into Oh, yeah. Old. Yeah. Yeah. So Kurt had one. Parents were rich, got him one. I begged my parents for one, and I got one. So, so so what was it? It was like it was like a Walkman that you could plug into? Right. You could it's plug like into. a personal trainer for instruments. It had great effects on it. You could distortion, oh. chorus, flanger, all kinds of fun stuff. You know, stuff. I had I had something like that. It was just it was it was just like a it was an amp that you that you plugged into and like like when I first start started playing bass and obviously I didn't stick with it, but you know, when I started playing bass, my you know, my parents didn't get me an amp amp. They got me one of those ones that you like clip on your on your belt and you can plug into with, with headphones and listen to sure. it. Sure. Right. Same type Pretty of thing. Pretty much the same thing. It's not an amp, it was just like a looked like a little Walkman. You know, and there right. so we could just we could just shed all night. You know, we'd put one headphone in with music from a boom box and then the other headphone you're hearing what you're jamming. You know, 'cause That's I, I don't so think cool, you, I don't man. think at that time you couldn't link it with you know, music or anything, your tape deck or your CD player. Right. It's not like, it's not that, like that plugging been in. Like, that would have been advanced technology at that point. Right. <laughs> yeah. I, I love stories like that. Like, you know, there's been times when I've wanted to pick something up and I've been like, oh, I got to get this, I got to get this phrase trainer or I got to get this app or I got to get an interface so I can plug into GarageBand and do these things or I got to get this piece of technology or da 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 da. But then you read stories of like, you know, like I read Don Felder's book and he's talking about how he learned to play guitar and it's like, or, or like Slash learning to play guitar. And they're talking about like having like a reel to reel machine, you know, with, with music on it or like, or recording songs from the radio onto a reel to reel or onto a cassette and just like press and play, playing along with it and then rewinding it and doing it again. in front of the record player, you know, lifting the arm up right you know and then back down and placing it where you needed it needed it to be fuck if we had all that stuff all that stuff now then i don't maybe i wouldn't be very good right Who knows? you just but i learned totally organically that's you know? really cool i just started practicing doing a different version of my solo gigs with my old fostex four track Amazing. That's really? Great. Yeah, just laying down different, just like using the four different tracks and laying down like a bass line on one and like a little drum track on another. And then like That's really they cool. can just kind of fade out between them and when I'm playing and stuff. So I had this idea recently of like, once we finish this next run of recordings with, with Evergroove, like I have entertained the idea of like, I would have to re- replace the power source because I lost it years ago, but I have this like, Tascam eight track, you know, I've like entertained the idea of just getting the guys together and going and renting a cabin and just taking that eight track, you know, cause I think it's actually only 
four tracks that you can plug in like XLR or um, or quarter inch. But then, you know, there's like another track for like tape in or something like that, like via RCA or something like that. But uh, so, I mean, it, it, for all intents and purposes, it's like really only a, a four track, you know, as far as stuff that you're able to like plug into it. And I just, you know, I don't know if you need as many of the bells and whistles as we have now to make something cool that people enjoy. You know what I mean? There's something to be said for a really great producer or like recording in a really high quality studio like Evergroove. But there's this part of me that just wants to go do a deliberate, like turn and burn, deliberately shitty record. You know what I mean? Just like recording everything directly from mics to amps into the four track. Well, that's how they used to do it. That is I how mean, they really. used to do it. Yeah, were, those albums weren't very shitty, were they? No, they weren't. And like, um, we've been we they were, were real, and they sounded real. They did. You know? Have you heard? Uh, we've talked about it a couple times on this show. Um, Ty was telling me about uh, somebody took "Fool in the Rain" and quantized it, and it sounds terrible. You I know, don't even know what that is? What's Quite, quantized? Like, uh, like Beat Detective, like running running the drums through Beat Detective, oh, okay, and like right. getting them getting them in a grid so that they everything hits on the beat oh, perfectly. Oh, it matches up. Right, right, right. So, like, if you take John Bonham and you quantize it and it quantizes drum parts, they sound bad because it doesn't have that push and pull and that swing that he had. You know what I mean? far out yeah 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 so it's 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 interesting to think about that and like we're getting ready to go in and do this next run of songs and i'm like tempted to just do it without click track but can you because you've been so spoiled i know right like i mean at the end of the day that really comes down to tie we're really just going down going up there to to get as long as we walk away with drum tracks you know that's really all we need, and then everything else will happen in overdubs. But yeah, I wonder if like that's something we would be able to do. Gordo and the Granny Tweed guys they uh, they don't use click track at all because mostly because Gordo can't talk his bandmates into using a click track. Like they have no interest in it. They like they don't want to learn to play to it. And I'm like listening to their record and being like, wow sounds like a really good record and it's not all spit polished and it doesn't have everything just like locked into place and everything like kind of regimented you know you know it's interesting or just just do the whole thing like that yeah don't go back and overdub see what you see what happens do the whole thing live right yeah yeah see that's and that's kind of what I'm thinking is it would be it would be fun to just get tapes upon tapes upon tapes of just jamming and then take it in and see what you can make from it. It'd be an incredible experiment. It would be an incredible experiment and it might end up being the most fun record we've ever done. I don't know. Which record would this be for you guys? The the, the while well, we're getting ready to release the third ruckus record. As far as records that we've done in all time, I don't know. I would have to sit and figure it out. But it would be the third. Uh, we're, we're getting ready to release the third Ruckus record. And then we're going in to record what would be the fourth and fifth Ruckus record. And then I was thinking after that, it would be fun to just go take a vacation with the guys and work on that. Like, I think that would be neat. You know what I mean? That would be cool. Yeah. So when you were when you're learning to play bass, 
Um, I think you had I, I heard you mentioning one time about you were you were saying how to get how to get good at the bass was just basically you know metronome and modes like learn yes, the learn right. the modes and play the metronome did were you doing it at this point or no. is that something that you did when you started playing on a more professional level when i decided i wanted to get good at the bass or right. good enough that's when i felt like it was time to maybe do it the right way whatever that is but right. learning those modes how was it i went to pro sound music on remember i remember pro, pro sound. sound on alameda yeah yeah and this cat noel was there and i mean he was badass he played right. with he played with all the funk and soul bands. Sugar Bear was one of the bands he played with, and I always thought this dude was so cool. And he, I was in there looking at basses, and he said, you need to, you know, first of all, you need to get a five-string. Get you, get yourself a five-string. So I got a five-string. That was way over my head at the time, right. you know. Jaco Pastorius played with a four-string. It's good enough for him. Right. It's good enough for me. Right, right, right. Five-string didn't stick around too long. But anyhow, he got he had me buy this mo- this book with modes, and just different scales, and I just shed it away at those a lot. Yeah, with a metronome. So this is after military school. You come back, and it, so when when you're in military school, and you guys are playing and doing like school functions and things like that, are you just playing badly, or are you are you getting by and like like are you guys a pretty decent band while I, you're doing this? Probably be- fairly badly. Me, maybe. Right, but. And Kurt, the guitar player, was so good, and his drummer was pretty seasoned for a kid as well. I don't know. I felt like I was doing pretty good. Right. Kurt would show me the lines, and I, like I said, I would shed all night on these things. Right. And we didn't have a catalog of 50 songs. I mean, we kind of played the same five songs over and over. What kind of stuff were you guys playing? Oh, we, you know, Johnny Be Good. <laughs> right. Louie Louie. Yeah, into, yeah, into, yeah, yeah. Into, into Wild Thing. Right, 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 right. Into Hang On Sloopy. Yeah into, you know, <laughs> countless other songs. The, the you only need one piece of sheet music for everything. Right, three chords. <laughs> the toughest thing we did, I think we would do Cliffs of Dover by Eric Johnson. Right. I think that's the one. You know, just killer tune. Kurt had that down, and that was my toughest bass line, and that really stretched me pretty far. And I, that's, I, I don't know, I thought I was doing pretty good. So... But w- so, what I, made you want to get? What made you want to get better? Then, what made you want? Well, to... I wanted to play in real bands. I okay. wanted to play at bars. I just wanted to get out there and play with some real good players. So, yeah, I started learning the modes, and I would sit down with a CD player and I would just learn songs. And then I started learning the blues, right? Which is a really great intro for musicians. Not that the blues is easy if you learn how to do it right, right? But the beginning blues is pretty easy for a bass player, right? You know, you can. Get away with being real basic. Right. Learning the 12-bar blues. Right, because it's just about holding down the rhythm. Right. And, I mean, I think I had a rhythm in me. You know, I've got music in my blood. Right. So I just started learning those blues bass lines. Then I started going down to Brendan's Pub when it was down at, you know, 15th, 16th and Market, 17th and Market. It's now um, one of those, it's Oscar Blues uh, place. They have live music. It was a Philly cheesesteak place before that. But anyways, Brendan's was the 17th shit. 17th and Market. Okay. It's underneath. There was Crocs above it. It's in the basement. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it, it, was, um, it was like the Blue uh, blue Mule at one right, point. Right, it was the blue, blue Mule. Double Daughter, I think. Or Double Daughter was upstairs. Right. Right. Yeah, the Blue Mule downstairs. Okay, cool. So after Brendan's moved out of there, 
It was Kevin Garrity who owned Brendan's. Right, and then ended up moving it down, and it was it He moved was it down to what is now, well, no, he left Brendan's on market and then moved down to what is now the Marquee. So he did the build out on that space. He had always dreamt of bringing Brendan's into a bigger space, right. a bigger stage, more legit room, and it didn't transfer. People, it just worked in the basement. It didn't work down where the marquee is now. Right. So they did a lot of work on it. I think he lost his ass on it. Kevin's a great guy. He brought blues to Denver for a long time. Right. But coming back to Brendan's downstairs, it's just this great blues room, and they had live music seven nights a week. And back to the fake ID thing, that's how I first started getting into Brendan's. I had, I had a decent looking <laughs> fake ID. And I wasn't going there to party, really. I was really going there to, you just wanted to go play. watch the music. And I went there on Monday nights, because Monday night was the blues jam, the open jam. Right. Larry L- L- Lorraine on bass, Rich Reno on guitar. I mean, just monster players. Really looked up to these guys. So you were never doing like like playing in in punk rock bands or or just shitty loud rock and roll bands. Like you went directly for like the big hitter, like the real players. That's like where you wanted to hang out and where you wanted to be. Yeah, because I wanted to start gigging in the clubs. What what ma- what makes a you know eighteen nineteen year old kid interested in playing in that kind of world you know in in, in playing like because that's like you know if i was 18 19 years old i could see that being like old guy stuff to me you know like dad rock to me but that's like something that well, you I, wanted to be a part of. i wanted to make a living playing music it, 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 when did it, you it, decide that you I, wanted to play mu- music profet- like like as a living? Probably in high school when we were just jamming you're like i want to do this for yeah, a living yeah. i want i want to make my living doing this. i wanted to be a radio dj was one of the things I wanted to do. And I ended up going yeah. to college for broadcast communications was my major, which obviously never used. Where'd you go? I went to Metro State. Oh, you went to Metro? Okay. Right. And I did the internships and all that, but I obviously didn't t- take that course in my life. But I wanted to I wanted to play music and I wanted to make money doing it. And I knew that a lot of these bands that were playing out were a lot of blues bands, a lot of jazz bands, things like that. I don't know. I don't know where that did you came know from, that there Did you know that like... Playing the bass was going to be like something that was in demand, like it was it was going to be something that got you work, or was it just the instrument you stuck with, or, or, or? I felt like it was going to get me work because I, I've always known, I've always had friends as musicians growing up, and I always knew everyone was a guitar player, right. especially at that time. Right. Guitar is not nearly as cool now as it was then. Right. You know, so bass was. I I just felt like man, I can get gigs if I play bass. Right. So I started going down to this jam, and I eventually I had the balls to get up on stage, or I, they coaxed me up there. And the first few times I went down, they put me up with, you know, their, the, the shitty players. You know, <laughs> right, I, got right. a, I got a list of guys. I gotta gotta get Jimmy on stage tonight. It's it's like an open mic comedy thing. Like it, you go get on the list, and then it's like, yeah, he's been showing up every week, and we haven't put him on. So let's get him up here. Right, and they were great. They were really encouraging. I think because I'm a bass player, right. or I was an aspiring bass player. I think Larry Lorraine, the bass player, was on stage all night during that jam, and he wanted to go grab a beer. Right. So they we, needed somebody else to sit yeah, in and do it. Let's make this dude happy, and maybe he'll get good enough, and he can come down every week. Well, it happened. I started going down every single week, and it made me a great, uh, much better player real fast. Wow. So I started learning the blues. And you're how old at this point? I 
1920. That, so that, that you're still doing the fake ID at this point? Like you're still like you're not even 21 going down to this place. Right. Holy yep. shit. Yep. That's really cool. I've never asked you about this. You know, we've been friends a long time, and I have right, never yeah. asked you about this. Well, that's I, th- I believe that's how it kind of all started. Wow. And from that, I met a lot of the bands or early bands that I was in in Denver and a lot of people that I'm still close with. I started. So what was the first band you were in in Denver? Um, I was in a band called Emilio Emilio. And Emilio oh, you were in Emilio Emilio? Yeah. No way. Because he, I mean, he still does shit. Yeah, he still plays around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I was enamored by him. He would come down to the jam and he would, you know, he's just a guitar slinger. I thought he was just, I thought he was the shit. Yeah. And I got paired with him one night and we ended up kind of being buddies. And he said, hey, you know, I was living in North Denver at the time and so was he. He said, you should come over to my house someday and jam. I'd love to have you come jam. And I did. And he just kind of showed me some bass lines and in, uh, in conjunction with that he said if you're going to play bass you need to understand the drums so he put me behind the drum set and showed me some rhythms and things like that so you can play you can play the drum like, I cannot play the drums well but you can, you could probably play the drums better than I could uh, maybe maybe yeah. but he wanted me to at least understand the drums and the inner workings between a drummer and a bass he's like player. your Obi-Wan like at this sure, point you totally. bet yeah well, he was my mentor, and it was really – I really looked up to this guy. Later on, I was – you know, I'd, we had our issues, but I still loved the dude. And he got me – put me in front of some of my biggest crowds. Um, like what? Like what did you do? Well, I was playing with for Emilio Emilio for about three years. We opened up for Eric Johnson. No up fucking way. Robin Trower at the Ogden no Theater. No way. We opened up for Ronnie Montrose at and the this is in, Theater. And this is in your early 20s you're doing this? Yes. Wow. So this is this is the time when nobody in particular, NIPP, right. ran Bluebird and Ogden, booked those rooms. Yes. Yeah, Steve, Steve Schott, Schott or Doug and, Kaufman, Chris and, Swank. Chris Swank, and then and this is back when the like the Three Kings guys were like working security. Sure, and, they were and they were, they were working and, over there. Yeah. So yeah, Emilio was just one of those guys at that time who was getting a lot of those big opening slots, and you know we opened for Gil Scott Heron one night. So we did all these really amazing shows. You opened for Gil Scott Heron? That's we really did. fucking I, cool. I, dude. That was at the Bluebird as well. Wow. So those were so I had I. Had, but believe me, we were doing shithole bars too. Right. And at that time, Emilio was working a lot. He was really a hustler. He had a lot of people really loved him. He had a lot of friends. He was playing like every night, probably. I believe he was playing three to four nights a week. And were you playing with him three to four um, nights a week, or or was he switching people out? I think I was playing with with him full time steadily during that period. So because it's like like ton. our mutual friend Chad Amen. You know, he's right. got like a rotating cast of people that he does stuff with. A lot of jazzers do that. A lot of blues guys do that. Right, but now, you were like you were like his main clutch bass player. I think I was his main bass player, and I think a lot of it had to do with I was cheap. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. You were young and hungry. Yeah, I was, you know, 15, 20 years younger than him. I was hungry. I wasn't going to say no to any gig. Right. I showed up early. I helped load in. You know, I just, and I worked, I worked hard. Wow. You know, and and I wanted that gig real bad. But from that gig, it opened a lot more doors, and I ended up just meeting a lot of other great musicians and getting hired for other gigs and other bands. And you, I, now what, what is your day job at this point? Are you still, are you just playing music at this point? Because this is before you had kids and everything, so your overhead was low. Yeah, no, then I was, shit, I had all the jobs. Right. I mean, I worked at Pizza Hut. Um, 
I would that time I was gigging a lot, so I was doing the I would come in in the morning really early to do the prep, and I would do the lunch buffet. At Pizza Hut. <laughs> sort of, the lunch, sort of buffet? lunch buffet. I remember the lunch buffet at yeah. Pizza Hut. Lunch it was, buffet. Dude, yeah. it's like it's like when you get when you get your when you get all your book it stars and and you get to go in and have your your personal pan pizza. You get the buffet and the salad. Sure. I remember that. This shit. was the red the red roof. They called oh, it the yeah. red roof if it was a dine in, and that was it was on um, right off off Tamarack and two twenty five. There's probably like one dine in Pizza Hut in the whole state of Colorado now, if it's even still there. Yeah, you don't see them much anymore. No, it's not a dying really. breed. Yeah, but that I, was a that was a cool gig for me because I made a good hourly. Right, and then I'd keep that hourly all day, and then I'd go hustle tables. You know, you'd, it's not really a you know tricky serving job to serve a buffet. Right, you bring right, them right. A big red cup of Coca Cola, and they go help themselves, and then you clean up their enormous mess of pizza crust all over the right. table. But I'd hustle out an extra forty, fifty bucks for a lunch shift, so I was I was doing pretty good at that time. Yeah, I mean, I mean, for that age and that time, and it, and low overhead, and it was allowing you to to go play at night. And dude, you're yeah. doing you're talking about doing huge gigs at this point. Yeah, but you know, those gigs weren't paying a dime. You know, when you're you open, as you know, you're the opener for the big band, right, you're right, right. Band maybe making a hundred bucks, hundred fifty bucks, right. And they're not, and, and Emilio's probably yeah, not he ain't splitting it evenly, right, right. Which right. I, you know, years later when I learned enough lessons, I'm like, fuck this, I'm out of here. But you know, I had a lot of jobs, and I ended up. So two more jobs that I had, I ended up working at Denny's doing the graveyard shift. I did on, Denny's on Arapahoe and I twenty five. In fact, actually, I did that before Pizza Hut, and I would work Sunday through Thursday. So I always had Friday and Saturday off to do gigs. Right. And then eventually, I went over and I worked for the Welshire Inn. Yeah. Which I ended up doing for the good four. Four four years, right? We had a lot of mutual friends. Yeah, that, yeah. That worked for me because yeah, I was the manager. Yeah, jo- Johnny and 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 did, Fatty worked for him at that point too, didn't he? Fatty didn't work there, but Paul Nebel. Oh, Paul Nebel, yeah. And Moose worked there. Yeah. So all the kids my age yeah. and younger are like, and you're like the older guy than them, like probably yeah. their supervisor. At I that was point. two, maybe three years older than them. Oh, okay. You, you know, and but I was looking for trouble too, so we had a lot of fun, right? So, but I did these jobs, so. I could have, I built, basically to this day, I built my entire life so I could have, have the freedom. nights off or, you know, in my older years, owning my own businesses, so I could have the freedom to go on the road. Are or, you touring at this point already? No. When did you start touring? I started touring when I um, started playing with Doug Kershaw. So and, much later, because you didn't start playing with Doug until when? When did you start playing with um, Doug? So my daughter's 14. It was right before she was born when I started playing with Doug Kershaw. So okay. 14 years ago. So is this before or after Mercury Project? That was post-Mercury Project. That was post-Mercury. Okay, so let's let's wait to get to that then. So what happens after you part ways with Emilio? Who are you playing with then? Oh, I played with a band called The Trainwreckers, which was an awesome band, female, you know, kind of two sisters led the band, these, you know, dreamy you know, blood harmonies, like heart, you know, cool. it was a really neat band. And that was a, that was a hardworking band. And I, at that same time, I was playing with a number of bands while I was playing with the train record. So I was gigging almost every single weekend and two to three weeknights a week. So I was You're playing. just hiring yourself out, just doing the hired gun thing at this yeah, point. Yeah. I played with, you know, Michael Hornbuckle. Yeah. Uh, d- during a big period of that time, I played with the Clam Daddies. You played uh, with the Clam Daddies? Really? Yeah. That was, I did, I did that <laughs> for awesome. a good three to four years. Yeah. 
So, and then, you know, playing with Moses Walker taught me a lot about music because he, He's plays, amazing. Yeah. he plays these jazz chords and these songs with a million changes. So I wasn't, you know, I went from kind of almost faking it for a long time to actually learning it. Right, right. You know, I wasn't playing just these, you know, modes or lines or 12-bar blues anymore. I was starting to play some pretty far out things. So my, but my first experience with a, like a real rock or pop band was the Mercury Project. Right. I was going to school at Metro. Sam Emerson, John Emerson's sister, knew this band that was forming called the Mercury Project. They'd been around about a year and they needed a bass player. And I got the gig and I think I played in that band for about six years. I remember really seeing you guys band. at Cervantes, Sure, I yeah. want to say. Yeah, we would. Yeah. We mostly played. Great band. We mostly played at Herman's. Um, yeah. And, you know, we always had a great crowd. I love that band because 60% of the crowd was female. Right. And cute girls. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I was. You guys were very catchy, very, very danceable, very accessible. The, 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 the girls loved you guys. Yeah, it was so. I remember that. So awesome. And, you know, we'd win these battle of the bands and Westward Awards. And it was just a lot of fun. It was a great group of guys. And at that time, I was working at JL Cheers on Hampton and Monaco Dude. as a bartender. I go to the Bagel Deli all the time. Yeah. And JL Cheers is right around the corner there. Yeah, at the bottom of the hill there. Yeah. And I was. It just occurred because I live up at basically Mississippi, where Mississippi and yeah, you're not too far part, from Cheers. Yeah, so I'm right over there by um by uh, uh, Fairmount Cemetery right mm-hmm. there, and it took several times of Sarah and I going there before I realized th- that JL Cheers was like like a place that that like fourth year freshmen played. Like yeah, they, they did th- play there. Yeah, dude, like they've been. Wait, were you working there when we no, played there? No, that was right after me. Really? Because I had had I had bought Cafe Zero by that time. Oh. But, so it's you know back then Cheers was that's where you went if you went to Cherry Creek or TJ. Yeah. And you were underage. <laughs> you went to Cheers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And we let you drink. Yeah, yeah. And that dream ended. We got in big, big trouble. So it's and probably changed ownership several no, times. No, it's the it. same owner. Is Jack, it really? Jack Loman is the owner, and he's a super awesome dude. And in fact, he, he just was, cleaned house at a certain point. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. He was my mentor in the bar business, so I attribute a lot of my knowledge on bar ownership to Jack because I, you know, I left the Welshire Inn. Um, I was laid off, uh, and I had popped into Cheers to get wasted on the day I was laid off and Jack's daughter was there working there behind the bar and I told her the deal and she said, listen, man, we need a manager over here really bad. Really? So I came in and met with the owner the next day and he offered me the job. So I was the general manager at How Cheers. long were you at JL Cheers for? I was at Cheers for, gosh, three and a half, four years. And then you went to Herman's from there or? No, I bought Cafe Zero from there. So wait, because I remember you bartending at Herman's Hideaway. Like that's how I you and I—I I did work at Herman's. Well, that's how you and I met. Right. Is because fourth year would do shows over at Herman's, and we really liked playing there. Like we were one of the few of our contemporaries because there was always this kind of like meme in the punk rock and and metal scene that just like shit on Herman's. Yeah, I mean, it's still that it's still that way. Right, right. Yeah, cuz Herman's is not it ain't punk rock. Right, right. There know? was just something that like people thought it was uncool, but we always loved playing there because you and Chris Thomas 
and 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 Mike, like everybody that was running that place, took really good care of us, and we always had a really good time. Yeah, it's a great place. And, and that's that's where you and I met. And I always remember you being just very friendly and very accommodating, and one of the one of the reasons that we love playing there so much. But that was before you you owned Cafe Sarah. No, that was after. That was after Cafe. So Sarah. the timeline. Okay. Is I went from the Welshire to JL Cheers, and I left the JL Cheers when I had the opportunity to buy this little bar on South Broadway mm-hmm. called Cafe Ciro. It was at South Broadway between Lincoln and Arkansas. It was such a cool place. And yeah, one block north of Herman's Hideaway. And I'd always adored this place. And I wanted. To, I was in this mindset my last year at Cheers. I had learned so much about the business. The owner had taught me so much about ordering product and inventory and scheduling and staffing and just all the, many of the ins and outs of the business. I said, shit, I can do this myself. We all get that feeling. You work somewhere and you go, oh, man, I could do this better. Right. Well, can you put it to the test? <laughs> right, right, right. So, can you do it day in and day out? Can you do it better? Like, can you show up at, like from open to close and do it better? Or are yeah. you going to burn out? That's right. I mean, the owner of Cheers has had the place for forty years now. Wow. And he's still still moving on with it, you know. So I I left uh, Herman's Hideaway. And I bought this bar, and I ran Ciro for. I don't know, three and a half years or something like it that. It was such a cool place, man. It was, it was for, a great for, place. for people who aren't from here or don't remember it. That what was so cool about Cafe Ciro is it was just like an old Victorian house that had been converted into a bar, right? And it had, you know, it like different room, like it it had kind of this open floor plan, but it had. It was like somebody had taken a dollhouse and just like and cut out the center so there was like rooms that were all accessible and right, like yeah. there there was like different compartments in all over the and bar. And then upstairs with right little couple little nooks and Yeah, yeah. It was it was such a cool place and like fish tanks and and you could go in there and party and like you could spend all night just moving into different areas of yeah, the bar. Yeah, it was a special place. Yeah, the very special place. Yeah, the the fish tank was great. I love that. Yeah, that, but that was one of those, just one more cost, one more thing to pay for and maintain. Right, you know? having someone come in and do and do that, and it had a kitchen too, and good it had food. A, it had a kitchen. Yeah, it, it, that was always a big struggle. For right. me, it was kitchen. Um, I mean, Fat Body ran that kitchen at one time. <laughs> you know, I had Roe ran that kitchen at one time. Maybe Fat Body was working for Roe. I just don't remember. Right, right, right. A lot of those years, I don't remember. But right, there was a lot. There was a lot of partying going on at that time. There was a lot of partying for me and our clientele. But it was a special place. It was, you know, it didn't didn't have neons and TVs everywhere. I had one TV behind the bar, and if it was on, it probably had cartoons on it. Right, right, right. You know, I had a neat jukebox that I wouldn't do the digital jukebox because I wanted the CD loading jukebox so I could pick all the CDs. So it was like the soundtrack of my life. Plus, I would always do local bands and things like that. Right. And and that made us some money. A jukebox made us money. We always had so much fun playing there. Like when you owned it and when... um, Brian, uh, the the from streets. The, he bought Brian from streets. Came he bought in and, zero from and, you, right? and bought it from you. Yeah, and even when he owned it, it was really fun. But something about the vibe of that place, it was just unsustainable. I thought he ruined zero. Did you? I liked the guy, but he he made it into something that it probably shouldn't have been. The neighborhood couldn't sustain it. 
You what, know, what, what do you a, mean by a, that? Like, what, what, you, what is it that the neighborhood couldn't sustain it? Kind of bringing streets of London right. to, to this gentrifying spot on South Broadway. And it had generally made a... I mean, it was busy, and we had live music, and it was that was loud, so my neighbors didn't like that either. That was a constant, constant issue right. for me, which I've subsequently gone through at the Oriental as well. Of course. But it was just kind of a... It was a late night musicians hang out. This is where you'd go. You get off. If you have an early gig, you get off your gig and you come down to Cyril because you know seven nights a week there's going to be music. Mm-hmm. And three or four of those nights were a jam of a different variety. Right. You know, we had a reggae jam, a funk jam, a kind of a acoustic singer-songwriter night and then, you know, something else on the other night and then other local bands on the other nights. It had a very, it had a very speakeasy feel to it, you know, because it's kind of tucked away off of Broadway and and the view is a little obscured by the by the trees and everything there. Yeah, and it's like, unsuspecting. You can, you can really right. just blow by it. They don't have a giant sign up that says "Bar, come I drink did. here." And, you Actually, know. I had two really cool signs. We had taken the O from an old Woolworth sign, which was giant, and that was the frame of the sign, and then neon zero or cafe zero on the sign. And at one point, it said, you know cocktails, food, espresso. Because <laughs> initially we were going to, it was it had that vibe of almost a coffee shop too. Right, right, right. So we had these expensive coffee makers. So we were going to go that route. But those, you know, if you're, if you know any about bartending, if you, you want to pour drinks, you got to make a cappuccino. And if you've got to stop and make sucks. an espresso, you're going to fucking kill the person who orders yeah. it. Yeah. Right? So those machines eventually broke. Right. And we just ditched them. Yeah. So we took the espresso part off the neon and put live music on there. Right. But then I had this idea that we're going to put this big sign that just says bar. My buddy Jay, who was a neon guy, worked for Acme Neon. Right. He made this cool sign. It said bar, and then it had these, like, flashing, you know, marquee lights around it, you know, like you're at Lakeside. Right. Okay. Yes, I remember that now. Super cool. Okay, it's coming back. Yeah. And I had that up for... Oh, short of a year, but the city made me take it down. Why did the city make you take it, it down? Because it was too distracting for people driving Oh, by. driving down Broadway. That was the point. Broadway. I wanted you to, your eye to, you know, catch and look, you know, and see. But they said, you you know, you know, you need a permit for that sign. Right. And we didn't, we, we didn't want to fool And it's it, old so. Broadway and it's kind of residential, you know. And I think that at that time it was all antique stores over there. Right. And it was kind of a sleepy part of Broadway. At night, it was so sleepy. It hadn't quite gotten there yet. That yeah. was a big problem that we had um, when I was at the Overland. And, uh, you know, bushwhackers kind of yeah, had people the weren't problem. driving down that way as much. And there's yeah. not a scene. You're not, there's not foot traffic over there. Right. You, the Everything thing, shuts down at a certain time. Yeah. The, the benefit was there was plenty of parking at Sierra. We had a lot out back, and you could park on both sides of Broadway across the street. You know, the only thing maybe you were fighting for parking with Herman's a little bit, but sometimes you get some of that foot traffic pre and post show from Herman's for their bigger shows. Right. And we had a good relationship between the two bars, so we'd try to promote each other. That's really cool. But Ciro was a great time. So that was my first taste of bar ownership and entrepreneurship. Right. You know, and are you, still, are you still playing at this point? I'm playing, but I'm playing less. Right. Are you doing Mercury Project or is Mercury Project done by this The first point? year of, of Ciro, I still was in Mercury Project. And the band gifted me some performances at Ciro. Oh, like, cool. Like our okay. grand opening and then one or two after that. And, you know, that was huge for us because that right. place wasn't too big. I mean, maybe if the whole thing was packed up and down patios and everything, you could put 200 people on the whole place. Oh, yeah. But 
we had a couple great nights from that, which was helped me out a lot as a right. business person. So, and then a, the band ended up splitting, splitting apart. Guys moving different interests, things like that. Right, 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 right. And so I kind of slowed down a plane, but quickly I ended up getting hired to play on the road with Doug Kershaw. Okay, so that this is when this Doug is Kershaw, when Doug Kershaw, Kershaw started. This so is for also people who I, don't know. No, go ahead. What were you going to oh, say? This is also when I had my first child. My daughter was born. So you started playing. So you had Ciro and started playing with Doug, Doug Kershaw and had your, your daughter all around this. Pretty much the week I was buying Ciro, Casey said, come over. And I went over. And Casey, you know, is my wife now. She's beautiful and I love her. But we were just dating. Right. You know, I had met her at Cheers. She would come to Mercury Project shows. And then, yeah, she says, I'm pregnant. So I'm so I've got a baby coming, and I just bought this bar, right? Yeah, and then so what's going what's going through your head when that's going on? Man, I don't know. I was numbing my head a lot at that time. I was super stressed. I was really worried. Were you you scared about being a dad? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was scared about. Yeah, I was just scared about being a dad. How old were you when twenty nine? Twenty nine into (laughs) thirty, dude. Yeah, I mean, if 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 I mean I. I love Sarah and I love my son so, 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 so much. And I was so excited when I found out I was going to be a dad, but I'm almost 40. You know, if I had been 29 when I found that out, it would have scared the shit out of me, man. I wasn't ready. I wasn't done partying. Right. I mean, I definitely wasn't done partying. I wasn't ready. I wasn't, I wasn't financially viable. You know, I mean, you felt like you couldn't you couldn't support a family well, anyway. I think I knew I could if you had wise. to, right? I was I'd been hustling for a lot of years, and I was making dough. Right. When I worked at Cheers, I was making a lot of dough. Right. You know, and that was fun. But I was selfish and irresponsible, and I was pissing it all away, and I was like twenty nine year olds are like you do when you're twenty nine. Yeah. Right. And then you know, I meet this girl who's really just fantastic, and she gets pregnant. Right. And we all know how that happens. And right. uh, but I wasn't convinced I wanted to be with her. Right. I think I was scared because she was kind of perfect. Right. You know? But I didn't want to be in a relationship. I wasn't ready. Right. It's it probably all seemed very permanent and very final at that time. Yes. And it probably seemed like it was gonna be the end of a lot of things. Yeah, it did. And I was and then, you know, throw this brand new bar. That's like having a baby. Oh yeah. I mean you just got it, it's it's a life suck, man. You gotta be there. Yeah. You got to put the time in. It's a cash business. Yeah. I mean, it, no it, one's going to run it for you. No, and it needs to be, you know, nurtured and, you know, coddled. Yeah. The whole, the whole really, most of the whole time you own it, especially your first couple of years oh, if yeah. you want it to make it. And I had made a big investment in this place and I had just put everything on the line for it. I left what I thought was a pretty awesome job at the time to, to go out on my own and try to do this. Right. So, so then what happens? So, so you find out. Casey's pregnant. You got the bar going on, and then you find out you get offered. To, how do you get offered to go tour? For people who don't know, Doug Kershaw. Like I didn't know who Doug Kershaw was really. Like I knew you had played with him, and then I heard um, that show, Cocaine and Rhinestones, that podcast yeah, Tyler with Coe show. Tyler Mahan Co. And he did an episode on Doug Kershaw. And that's like when I really started to find out who he was. So yeah, it was an incredible story, too. Yeah, a very incredible story. I mean, story. that's just this it's much of my guy's legacy. Yeah. <laughs> um, so for people who don't know, Doug Kershaw is like, like an iconic Cajun fiddle player. 
Right. Like he is, is he in the Country Music Hall of Fame? Like is he? He's not in the Country Music Hall of Fame. He should be in the Country Music Hall of Fame. He's He's not? He is in the Cajun Music Hall of Fame, which actually I I was present for when he was inducted. Were and, you really present to, for that? Uh, that that like made me tear up a little. Yeah, bit it was cool. That was in that's beautiful. Lafayette, Louisiana, at the wow. at the Cajun Music Hall of Fame, and in fact, it was the Cajun Music Hall of Fame's first year. It had just been born. Right, and he was one of the, their, their first. Inductees. Did they just start that because they were tired of seeing their artists being passed over by the Country Music Hall of Fame, like not taken seriously? Well, probably. I think Cajuns have often felt very discriminated against. They, I mean, and as, they are. As a people right. and as musicians. Right. But there are so many incredible Cajun musicians, which I learned about just because of playing with Doug. So let's talk about that a little bit, because that's that's that just is like, this is like a huge part of your life right here. Yeah, it's a big part. Yeah, because you're being pulled in all these different directions by all these really huge life-changing blessings. So tell me a little bit more about what's going on at this point when you when you're kind of at this crossroads and being pulled in all these different directions. So like I, what how what ends up happening with Doug? How do you how do you get that gig? I got the gig with Doug primarily because his drummer who had been with him 10 years was a buddy of mine who I'd gigged around Denver with. And so he wanted me to get the gig, but Dave's exiting bass player David Foray, I mean that's occasion. He had been with Doug, I think, 15, maybe 20 years. Oh, wow. Dave also liked me a lot. He played in a band with Tempa. Do you know Tempa from Tempa and the Tantrums? Mm -mm. Great local singer. She now lives in Hawaii, maybe. But so Dave liked me as well. And he, you know, um, spoke for me. And so did Jeff. And I was sitting at home one day and I got a phone call and it was Doug Kershaw. And I couldn't (laughs) believe my ears because I, of course, I know Doug Kershaw because my dad was a big country fan and loved Cajun right. country, and he loved Doug Kershaw. And I remember the Kershaw albums, which I still have of my dad's, which they're so good. Goofy pictures of Doug on the front with his fiddle and these crazy outfits and faces, and and they were just wild and far out albums. An amazing player, just an amazing player. Yeah, truly amazing. I mean, yeah, yeah. He toured with the Stones. Doug Kershaw as, toured as, with as the support, Stones. right? No way. Yeah, he did. So he did, and he was also a. He was an actor. He ended up moving out to L.A. to be closer to the, you know, to film and TV. Because like, he, what has he been in? He was in a movie called Zachariah. It was kind of this '70s acid cowboy flick. Right. Uh, it's not great, but some people think it's. And he just great. plays Cajun weirdo guy number. He's some sort of devil with a fiddle in some <laughs> crazy scene. <laughs> no way. But primarily, he was doing. That all the, the television circuit. He was the very first guest on the Johnny Cash show. What? With Bob Dylan. What? He was, um, you know, he just did all those those variety shows that were big at the time. You know, he, and and you just you just got you just got tapped because you had those relationships with. I think, I yes, that's exactly why I got it. Right. And again, young, pliable, hungry, aff- affordable, right, agreeable. I'll take the gig and I'll be well and you're gender. and you're a versatile player. Right. Like people who haven't seen you play um the first time you and I really worked together and this is just a quick aside. The first time you and I really worked together. In fact, this was really the first time I think I paid attention to you playing. Cuz during during the times that I had seen like the Mercury Project play, I was drunk. So I wasn't 
I wasn't a really serious musician, so I wasn't really paying attention to the individual players in the band. So the first time I remember seeing you play was when you came in and contributed to the White Fudge Colfax of Life album. Right. And we're sitting up at Adam Arate's home studio above the 16th Street Mall and just watching you learn and lay stuff like that was the first time I remember seeing what I would call like a session player studio musician come in and just lay stuff down very quickly and just pick up on on the arrangement of the song and things real quick and just be like do you guys like that what do you think of that okay cool I'll take another pass at it yeah that was a lot of fun it, it was a lot of fun and I I had a lot of respect for you through watching that happen and I didn't have a lot of confidence in myself as a performer, but more importantly, as a musician, musician, as a, as a melodist. Like I thought of myself as a vocalist, but not a singer necessarily. And that was probably the first time that I worked with like a pro pro who encouraged me. Like you were probably the first real professional musician to give me any sort of encouragement as to my craft okay you know no seriously (laughs) you know just saying things like you know hey you've got a really good ear or you know you know hey that sounds really cool i remember i remember being there very well you do i do yeah Yeah. man those were really fun times i remember not knowing what i was walking into i mean not having a clue i'd seen white fudge as just the MCs and, and, and turntables, yeah. And Brad, you know, at Herman's and maybe some other place. Probably did something at Cerro before, maybe. <laughs> Probably. Maybe. Fat Body, I've always loved and respected. He's my, you know, dear friend. He, I think it was him that asked if I'd come lay down some tracks. I really didn't know what I was walking into. So right. I brought my bass in and then I just put the headphones on and started listening to some of the, or was in the booth listening to some of the tracks that were in the works and I was like oh this is cool man I could let's let me get the bass out let's play right 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 so I think the first thing I did I was just fucking around I was just warming up I was just playing bass lines and I was screwing around playing little Jocko lines and playing some Marcus Miller funk lines and Eric producer that we said uh, Adam oh, Adam sorry, Arate course, yeah Adam. yeah yeah and he's, he's genius I love that dude yeah yeah he was like he was recording all of that. Right. He's like, do that again. I'm like, do what again? You know, that's just me <laughs> jacking around like while you were right. set, setting up over there. So we ended up, I think, doing about an hour of me just screwing around, just doing different bass lines. Right. Some walking bass lines. I did some Latin things. I did like a soca rhythm. I did some jazzy kind of stuff and did some chording and just, you know, weird stuff. And he's like, oh, I can use a lot of that. That's great. That was one thing that was really cool about working with him and also later on when we were working with Kyle is um, because their background was more like they were Adam especially because Adam's background was more electronic music and more more like dance music. Right, right. He would just take stuff and chop it up and sample it and place it wherever it was and appropriate. That's, that's exactly what he did. Yeah. I couldn't understand what he was. Right. Because you and I are used to, you write a song, you go into the studio and you, and you, play you record the song. the song. Yeah. You do five takes on that song. Right. So I, I, I didn't know what he had in mind. 
but I've been in the studio enough times and I recognized him as well enough as, you know, knowing what he was doing. Right. So I, I just followed direction. I mean, I think for three minutes, I just went, I remember that. You know, just different slides. Right, right, right. Like, hey, just tell me what to do. I'll do it. Because I'm having fun here. Right. We were having, a, it was. It was a really fun record fun. to make. And then I think then it was like, hey, let me hear some tracks that you've already, you know, got a lot done on or whatever. And he played them, and then I just started throwing some bass lines down on him. And that album, it came more naturally than most albums I've done, because I think I just had so much freedom. There, there was no expectations of me. Right. I wasn't getting paid. Yeah. I wasn't on any sort of clock that I knew of. It wasn't like you had to like land a take. Right. It's just like, go in and jam and fuck around, and then he'll go in and chop it up and put it where it needs to And go. he was so stoked the whole time, like, I'm... I think I don't even think there was two separate rooms. I think he was sitting right next to me or something. I'm in a little. He time. was. He, he was, was sitting right next to me. And you. he was so stoked on the playing, which made me feel really good. So I was just excited, and I think I was just I was feeling really on, and I was just trying to. So, anyways, we played played like oh I don't know which tracks, but he played some tracks, and then I just started laying bass lines up, and right. it just came real fast. And I was super stoked with it. I think I did two sessions at that studio. Yeah, and he was able to mix and match, use what he wanted, ditch the rest, and man, that album's good. It's a fun album. Cool and, Life is and, and, and I mean, album. it. I would not want to make an album like that again because it almost killed us just because of all of the coke and booze and, drugs, and Adderall. Yeah, a lot and, of drugs. I, was, that we I remember doing. walking in, and I think that's the first thing I saw. You know? <laughs> I mean, that's how I do. But no, yeah. not how I do. But I, that was, At that time. Like, is anything going to get done here? Right was my concern. <laughs> well, and I mean, at that time, you know, I won't name names, but one of us was selling drugs at that time. Sure, so it was in good supply. So there, it was always around, and because they were selling drugs, the studio was always getting paid for. So it's like every Tuesday night, we're just going to go to the studio and do a bunch of drugs and fuck around and we're going to get our friends to come in and do this and it was it was exciting for Adam too because I don't think he had really worked with a ton of analog musicians right you know I don't think he had done a ton of stuff where a guitar player or a bass player is coming in and and contributing parts to the songs you know what I mean like yeah. he was used to like plugging in his MIDI controller or his keyboard or just He was build. working alone. Yeah. He would yeah. he and his he and his cousin Derek. Yeah, right. Were and you plugging in straight to the board on that stuff or were you uh It was directly into an interface, right? I, I didn't bring anything in, so yeah, I'm sure I just went right into the board and all it right. just sounded so good in my headphones. Yeah. It all just sounded yeah. right, you know, yeah. like it, despite all the drugs. Maybe that's why it sounded so right. <laughs> but it all just, it all sounded so rad right away. It was away. so fun. I, I, I just, I hear that record and I wish I could go back and sing it knowing what I know about recording vocals now. Like that's like the only thing is it's such a cool record and it was just like so amazingly produced, but I don't like my performance on it. I do. I love it. I listen, I love that album. It's a fun album. I think you guys were all super good on it. And I think that... I don't know because I wasn't there during the whole process, but it felt like, like when I walked in, I'm like, these fucking guys, these guys don't have a plan. Not like I was some sort of hot shot, like you're lucky to have me here. Right. But just 
I've gone to enough situations like that where I felt like I was super wasting my time. Like this, right. this is super lame. Right. But then you get in there and it's just like this totally creatively free environment. Well, and the, the vibe was there. Yeah. And everyone was stoked and everyone was stoked to have me there. So it, it felt really good. And I think that that reflected in my playing. Yeah. Is so that, is that what encouraged you to actually come and play with us yes. as, as a band? Was when just I, that experience? Not that experience, but when I heard that album. When I, I, I don't remember when I got it, but I remember listening to it being like, this is freaking great. Mm-hmm. And I remember telling Jerry and Josh for sure, like, this needs to be a band. Right. Like this, we should, we need to be doing this with all the guys. Yeah. You got, you got Chad Amon for us. I remember that. Yeah. When we were doing um, Bust a Nut. Yeah. You were like, you were like, we need, we need a keys player on this. We need a, we need a synth player on this. I've got this guy, Chad Amon, that he'll come in. And we met Chad Amon for the first time and he came over to, uh, uh, Bart's studio back when he was at Motoland, Motoland yeah. and we recorded all the stuff there and then it's, it's I remember being concerned like I, I call Chad and I'm like listen <laughs> just so you know I've got this thing we're doing the studio thing and, and it's very I, adult yeah I was like <laughs> I, it's, I know it's because really I've known Chad for many years but I didn't know him as like a super tight buddy kind of until that experience right he had his rehearsal dinner at Cafe Ciro you know, so I'd, I'd, oh, always, wow. I'd always known the guy, but I knew him as a serious jazzer. Right. And I'm like I'm throwing him this curveball of white fudge, like this explicit, just no holds barred, just, right. re, just jackassery. Which is really just punk rock guys who like hip hop. Right. Is, is It was just, it was all just tattooed, scummy punk rock kids that, you know, were, were playing and you know, punk rock shows in, in warehouses and, and, you know, getting in trouble with the law and, and metal and, and all the rest of it that just also happened to like hip hop. And Jerry thought it would be like, Jerry wanted to make like a brother Lynch, a brother Lynch hung record. Right. Like he wanted, he wanted to make a gangster rap record. Right. Right. Cause he was, he was into that stuff and wasn't getting, wasn't getting that need met through playing in like fourth year freshman or whatever you know that he was doing at that time and to be to be frank he wasn't really flexing his abilities in that band because you know Jerry can strum out you know a few chords on a guitar but his skill set really ri- lies in writing incredibly clever lyrics oh he's much better suited in a band like white fudge than right. fourth year right 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 obviously so so we did take a quick aside there but I want I want to keep going about about Doug Kershaw. So so you're playing with Doug. What happens when you first show up and start rehearsing the material with Doug so Kershaw? There was no rehearsal. You were just expected to know yep, this stuff. Yep, never once never once rehearsed. So that first phone call, it was so quick, like and he's Cajun and he's real Cajun. And <laughs> so you can't like very, even understand very him. Very hard to understand. Yeah. Really <laughs> frustrating. In fact I taught him to text. Did you? When text when texting was starting to happen when you had to, you know T nine. Right. <laughs> he was I was driving the van and he was he was sitting next to me. And he's like, What you doing out there, boy? Well he he's, he did. He he said, Can you tell me about the about the texting thing? You know, and, and I walked him through it. And I mean, he's still a shitty texter. <laughs> and it's gotten the technology's gotten so much better and easier. But it was, I love that story because I remember teaching Doug Kershaw how to text. So anyhow. You he, heard it here first, everybody. Yeah, wow. Andy Burkaw taught Cajun country music the fiddle Cajun, and the Doug raging Kershaw. Cajun himself how to text. 
Yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, I would later regret that. Oh, right. But because he doesn't know like texting etiquette or. Exactly. And everything is in just like his emails. All caps? Uh, yes. <laughs> just like his emails, all caps. And I always thought that was just an ego thing. You got you know no no it's it's adults that don't know how to use the technology and 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 don't under they just don't understand the the nuance and the etiquette of it that's fucking hilarious Andy so he he had called me he said I'm looking for a bass player right Doug I'd be that that's wow cool sounds great you know I'd kind of felt like maybe it was coming because Jeff had said he he's, he's bucking for me to get this gig we didn't know how quick David Foray was leaving the band Dave left like instantly. As soon as the spot was filled, he was just out. As soon as I think Jeff told him, Andy said he would do it, he's out. Doug said, I need you in Natarita, Colorado tomorrow. Tomorrow. And you didn't know any of the the material? Did he send you a set list or anything? Um, No. You were just expected to be able to follow? Jeff gave me the set list that they'd been doing for the whole summer did you have like like uh like a fake book or mm, or no. charts or anything no but i got the cd i jeff ran me over the cd and i wrote quick charts and maybe it wasn't the very next day it was like two days later or something i need you in in natarita which is about by delta it's quite a drive so holy shit yeah it was two days so i had just a short amount of time to listen and try to understand what was going on. And, you know, I had been doing some country gigs before that, so I was like, ah, oh, this is just it's country. It's no problem. It's def- occasion is not country. Mm-hmm. A, and I learned that later with Doug, you know, him scolding me and, you know. Cajun is no gentleman deluxe. <laughs> no, yeah, it is no, no gentleman, gentleman deluxe. deluxe. <laughs> we'll talk about that later. <laughs> so I wasn't necessarily, I wasn't, I wasn't given the gig. I was hired for this gig kind of on a let's see how it goes basis. I right. get out to Natarita. I'm feeling really good about myself. I mean, I, I believe I had the CD in the entire way, you know, his, one of his live albums with the, pretty much the whole set and got up on stage and I think I pulled it off pretty good. And he, after the show, he said, you did a great job. And Jeff said, fuck, he, man, he never compliments anybody. So I think you got the gig. That's like a high honor then. Yeah, and it, felt, it did feel really good because, you know, I'm meeting this guy as we're walking on stage. That's for, always a weird feeling, like yeah. meeting your bandmate when you walk out on stage. Yeah, I've done that a number of times, but, you know, he, he was a, he's a big stature dude, you know, country music, you know. He's, yeah. And, you know, he's 86 now, which is unreal. Right. And he was in his 70s at that time, and he was an intimidating cat, you know. But it was a, it was a fun show. There wasn't many people in the crowd. I mean, Delta, Colorado, it's a small town. Right. It's a perfect crowd for my first gig with that band. Maybe 200 people, you know. I'd have been freaked out if it would have been thousands. Right. You know, a couple years later, we played at the Jazz Fest. So that was a whole whole different gig. Holy shit. So I ended up yeah, scoring this gig with Doug, and he— And you still play with him to this day, right? I still do, but he— He, again, he doesn't do it as much because he's— He's 86, so yeah. he's not doing much. I think he's in a lot of—he's in some pain. You know, his deal is this crazy, just out-of-control show. He throws a fiddle around. He doesn't play it up here. He plays it over here. And, right, right, right. You know, he, plays it, he plays it down low, right, yeah. Right, and he had told me at one point we were flying to Lyon, France. We were doing a gig in Lyon, and he, he was in a lot of pain. And he said, my hips are hurting. Hips are hurting real bad. And, you know, I don't want to do this if I can't 
give them the, the, the Doug Kershaw show. They come for the show. They right. like the music. The show is what's, this show is what's made me where, what, you know, who I am today. Right. Because he just did this great show. It's like going to see Jerry Lee Lewis without him kicking out the, the stool and like really yeah, banging just, on the piano. It's just not the same. You know, the, 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 the stage when it's Doug Kershaw, it's all the fellows in the band. And then you got to have a spotlight operator. Because some of the songs, a lot of the songs, are just a spot on him on a generally dark stage, with him sawing on that fiddle with the rosin, just psh. yeah, and it's like the smoke effect, you know, super super cool, and he's just animated and jumps around and you know, and he's not doing that at eighty six. Plays a fiddle behind his neck. That right, uh, he's trying, and he still puts on a damn good show. He's like the he's like the Jimi Hendrix of Cajun fiddle, just like thrashing up there. Yes, no, he absolutely is. That's so that's cool. that's what he's known. That was that his live performance is what he's known for. His studio albums, they're okay. They're a little cheesy, you know. Right. There's some filler, but his live albums are just super super amazing. So I got to travel a ton with Doug. I mean, I traveled a lot for years with him, and right. we were in, in his van, you know, and we were playing, doing long runs at casinos. Right. You know, casinos all over the country. We would do five. So this is your first, like, real touring that you're doing. This is, is my like first at, real tour. Yeah, out with Doug Kershaw. Right. How long? Has, routed how, how, routed how, tours, usually no longer than, like, two weeks would be the longest. Okay. Because he wanted to How get, many times a year? Um, like, how, I, I guess what I'm asking is, how, how much out of the year are you gone touring? While trying to run a bar and I, expecting a child. My first four years were the busiest years with Doug. That was the the lot of the gigs. You know, I've done right. I've done, you know, ten gigs a year with him since, but at that time we were probably doing fifty, sixty sh- dates a year. Mm-hmm. And, you know, routing to lots of small towns and then, you know, not really many bigger cities other than New Orleans. I remember one show he had we didn't know this, but we Drove all the way to New Orleans, played at the New Orleans Swamp Fest with Dr. John, and <laughs> fucking we are awesome. we are trying to find out where our rooms are. And he was like, "No, we ain't, we're not staying the night. We're going home. I got to be back in Denver." And or he like he lived in Greeley. I got to be back back home. Oh, so he li- he lived here at the time. He lived uh. in Baton Rouge, and he's got a ranch in Lucerne, Colorado, at the time. He, so you guys went all the way down to New Orleans yep. and then played the gig. Played a show and, and drove home. Holy shit. It sucked. I'll bet, dude. That's yeah. a long fucking drive. And we were mad and we we're like, we're, half the band's quitting, you know, like this is it, you know. But I was still pretty hot on it. It was still pretty fun. I was a couple years into it. And I was, right. you know, getting a lot out of it. But yeah, that was hard. Oof. I've never done that before. That, I, mean, that's a, I don't even know how many hours, 15, 18 hours? That just <sighs> that's an endless fucking... amount of time. And we were driving. You didn't want that's to dug- a day and a half of just driving. Like yeah. 16 hours out there, 16 hours back, just a day and a half driving to go play for what, an hour, hour and a half, something like that? Yeah, it was crap. <sighs> it was no good. Scooter Barnes was on that gig. Oh, really? The only gig he ever played with. We our guitar player playing guitar or what? Yep, our guitar player couldn't do that show. And later, he was so stoked that he couldn't do that show because he heard about the drive. <laughs> and Scooter jumped on to that show. That wow. was his one and only time playing with us. But that was a that was a tough one. But we played you know lots of fun things. Casinos were a little rough. You'd do a five night run at a casino and you'd do two shows in the Show Palace. You'd do two hour and a half sets 
usually about an hour break between them. So you're just grinding every you're grinding, single night. And you do the exact same set with maybe alternate the uh, encores. Right. And you're living in a casino for anywhere from five to seven days. I mean, it's... You don't know what time of day it is. No. You're the, eating from the buffet, just like... I liked that at the time. Right. Because the food was always... I thought, at that time, I thought the food was great. Right. And I love that Doug's deal was, well, I got you guys on the road. We're working hard driving. You always get your own room. So we always got our own room. We got solid scale pay. I mean, I was making good bucks. Right. So you'd have this room to yourself, which is cool, and you'd draw the curtains sleep a lot, get up, go to the, you'd have all day to do nothing. Right. Go to the buffet, maybe play some slots or something. Right, 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 right. Try not to blow all your dough. Right, right, right. But those, so we did a lot of those. We did a lot of county fairs and we did some really great international traveling in a lot of Canada. Yeah, you said Lyon, Lyon, France. Where else, where else did you go in, uh, where, where all did you travel to when you were Up and down the French Riviera. Oh my God. Which is really neat. so cool. Not that we got to see the French Riviera, but we got to see some stuff from the car. Right. And that's, that's another, man, that's like the trade-off, right? It's like, you know, you go out and you do a, bu- like we, we did a bus tour of Germany and we're like, oh my God, dude, we made it. We're like doing a bus tour of Germany, but it's like, you're doing all the driving at night. Yeah. Yeah. And you wake up in a different town and you get up and you eat and you load in and you do sound check. And, and then you got to sleep sometimes. You got to sleep. At, it, well, I mean, and you're able to sleep at night on the bus, but, you know, I, I mean, we didn't even go out for that long when we were doing the bus tour in Germany. And just from playing every night, I was just tired. So, you know, by the time we'd get done with sound check, I would need to get a nap to like rest my voice for the show or you know you got to take time to do warm-ups or you got to like write the set list and and uh you know you get up and you do your show and then you're at the merch table all night and and i didn't drink at the time but i still woke up feeling hung over just from being yeah so exhausted you know screaming your head off every night and it's like you know I remember Oktoberfest was going on and we were in Munich at the time and a bunch of the people we were with all walked over to go see the festivities in Munich and I just had no interest yeah. because I was so fucking exhausted. You know, we we saw some stuff, but I felt like we saw more when it was just us in a sprinter van driving around Europe not knowing what we were doing. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, <clears throat> when you're doing it professionally like that, you're... That, that's like the trade-off. It's like, you know, be careful what you wish for because you might get it. And then you get it and it's like, you know, oh my God, Andy's touring the French Riviera. And it's like, yeah, but, you know, I'm I'm working. Yeah, I actually had to go to France on my own just so I could see France. Right. But still a great experience. You know, Amazing, and, right. And it's a free trip to a really cool place. And the you, know, you always get the good foods. Oh, you yeah. Know, but touring with a, you know, national guy, they, everyone wants to take you know make you a great dinner right you know we play these small towns and the these 4-H groups bring you these great spreads and you know things like that oh yeah because of the type of music that you're playing like yeah so and you're playing to you know old folks oh yeah lots of pies <laughs> lots of pies he salads says. with uh, <laughs> salads with um, French dressing oh yeah you know, lots of pies lots and lots of fucking pies so okay, so I, I want to know, I want to know what's going on with with the bar while all this is going on. What's going on with 
with preparing for the arrival of, of your daughter when all this is going on? Like, how how are you balancing that? Like, what's going on? Well, daughter is probably, you know, come at this point. Um, I Home, I get to go to the hospital and see her, and that's it's amazing. Right. Um, and, you know, Casey's mom's an angel, and she helped out a lot with the baby, um, which was great. It was this time period was definitely a blur. Yeah. It was a, definitely a tough so time. So much going on, and it was tough. Yeah. And then the bar, I I had some great people. Um, one guy that was a dear friend of mine who I thought was great ended up not being so great, and letting him go. But I had enough good people to watch over the place while I was gone. And often I wasn't gone for very long. Right. Like most you said, these, you were only gone for like two weeks at and a And that was the longest. So most of these were like, you know, sometimes three-day runs. Go like I got to run out of town real quick. I'll be back. Yeah, do two two to three shows and come back. Sometimes one show and come back. We did some fly out things. Right. You know, but we go to Washington, you know, then Oregon and then come back, things like that. Right. So I was always worried about the bar when I was gone. And the things didn't always go so great when I was gone, but it ended up kind of being all right. Right. You right. Know? Yeah. So and then I'm trying to be home with my family, trying to make a go of it with Casey, who I was still kind of just getting to know. Right. You know, we had known each other very short amount of time before she was pregnant. I mean, right. having a baby with a complete stranger, that's a wow. tough thing. But I couldn't have had a baby with the, a better complete stranger. It, 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 it ended that's up wild, working out. Man. Yeah. That's really wild. I mean, like... I have a lot of friends who, not that I'm, not that it was any sort of like one night stand scenario, but it was pretty close. It was close enough. It was real close. And had it not been for the pregnancy, it might have, it might have easily just I, ended up being a thing. I say, I say that all the time. Nothing against Casey because she was like, I, I definitely outkicked my coverage on her, <laughs> and there's no doubt about it. But she, she stuck, she stuck it through with me through all the bullshit. She's and, pretty rad. Yeah, and through, you know, me chasing the dream of being a bar owner and this musician. But she loved the music part. She always supported that. I don't know if she loved the bar part. Right. I'm sure she didn't. God, I don't don't know why she would. Right. Definitely not conducive to a relationship, especially if you don't have your act together. Right. D- different scenario now. I've, well, in the bar world is just so just rife with drama and, and peril, you yes, know? Like, yeah. it's... Uh, you can be the best guy in the world, and if you're surrounded with booze and drugs and you haven't quite cultivated the maturity and the self-restraint to that that one needs to survive in a in a healthy relationship, you know, I mean you can you can easily destroy a relationship. You know, even if you don't step out of the relationship, even if you're not a hopeless drunk or an addict, even, you know, just being gone, you know, lack of presence just because of what it takes to be around that or like, or bringing drama home, you know, those type of things. It Or, or the people that you're around, like a mother who is trying to build a nest and start a family doesn't want her kid being around, you know, some guy who's fallen off his bar stool every night. You know, right. even if it's not her husband, she doesn't want that environment necessarily getting too close to her nest. You know what I mean? And it does. I mean, yeah, she's got, you got this great pure scenario at home. Right. And then I'm going to, not that the bar was 
total debauchery. I mean, no. it, it served a super great purpose and it was very It wasn't like a, a biker bar or anything. No, you know? but, it, you know, it's just a bar and it's going to right. be what a bar is. And, and it's where people go to, to do things in the dark. Sure. You know? And so I was kind of living a number of different lives here right. and wearing a lot of hats and trying to be a decent dad. And I don't think I was a great dad until year, a couple of years after that. Right. It took me a while to learn to be a good dad. She taught me how to be a good dad. Right. So, you know, a couple of years later, we find out she's pregnant again. Right. It was very well recepted. So was the first one. Yeah, yeah. You know, but you're more prepared at this point. I'm more prepared. And I decided it's time to leave Cafe Ciro. Oh, so you decided. It wasn't something like you tried and failed. It didn't you, fail. You made the decision to pull out. Yeah. Wow. I, I sold the bar. It, and I made a profit. I didn't get rich, but it... I never knew that. I didn't I didn't know... Like, I guess I just assumed that it was, it was difficult to sustain for you, so you let it go. But It was super difficult to sustain, and I, I knew... But not financially in so, terms of maintaining your home life. No, no, I was able to pay the rent. Um, now, got great parents that were all, you know, they were chipping in. Right. Because they knew that I, I think they knew I was working hard, and maybe struggling here and there. And they just wanted the best for their grandkids, my parents and, right. and her parents. So there was a few factors in me selling Cafe Ciro. One was I was getting a lot of phone calls, people dropping by, would you, you want to sell this place, which was strange. Right. And one thing, they were getting ready to rip up South Broadway. Right. And that worried me greatly. Right. It was gonna, I was going to lose any street presence. It was just going to be tough. And the biggest one, though, was having this baby like – man, I don't know if I can do two. I really got to get a job. Right. I got to make some steady income here. And some benefits and some, you know, security. Yeah, maybe some benefits. That'd be nice. Maybe, yeah. I didn't end up getting those. But and so I, with my attorney, Big Joe Dawson, we put um, the bar up for sale on a website for, you know, commercial spaces and things like that. And I sold a turnkey business, put a price tag on it, enough to, you know, cover my debts and make some good profit and pay Big Joe. Um, and it sold real quick. And you walked away from it. Yep, and I had a cash offer for it, and I walked away with it from it, and it was awesome. Took a couple took a couple weeks off, and then I went to work for Herman's Hideaway. So that's when you went to work for Herman's. Right. Okay. See, I had the, the, the timeline wrong all along. I thought I met you at Herman's. Like, I... Dude, I was a drunk and a half. What can I say? I, I mean, I just, my earliest memories of you were like, I was happy to see you behind the bar when we were playing a Herman's show. Right. You know, I, you know, I knew Andy was going to be there. We're going to have a great conversation. We were going to get treated right. And, you know, that was going to get a buzz on and have a great time. And that was really during a time when, and I was feeling pretty cool. You know what I mean? Like I was, and I think that that's something that, that is missing from a lot of, a lot of clubs is something that, that you did at Herman's and, and something that the Three Kings guys did for years initially. They did. Was they had this philosophy of just like, Treating everybody like a celebrity, everybody who walks through the door, you know, treating them like you're happy to see them. 
and I feel like a lot of places have lost that ability. I mean, there's some there's some people here and there. Like, you know, we're getting ready to have Tony Mason on the show. You know, I'm really bummed that he's moving because as far as, you know, uh, as far as promoters that are higher up, like he is, he is the the, the cream of the crop. He's been very yeah. Good I think for a lot season. of us are really concerned about that. You know, yeah, like I mean, for for good reason. Well, I mean, you know, time, like you know? you know, I love Danny Sachs. I love Ricky Aston. You know, Scott Campbell. The, the, those people have all been very good to us. But something, um, something about Tony. It was like he worked for this bigger company, but he had the he has the ethics of like the small local club. Yeah, well, he started out doing all that local stuff, you know. Yeah, so I'm, that's, I'm that's really where he, that's where he came from. You he, know, he was so at I, Herman's. He was Tony Mason was at Herman's. Yeah, he was. Um, I didn't know that. Yep, he was at Herman's right after I left and did the Oriental. So that is something, and so. So I think we can move into talking about the Oriental. That is something that I love about the Oriental and that I think is really cool is that you guys are one of very few independently owned and operated music venues that still gets major national and international acts. Like you guys, like I remember playing the Oriental Theater when I was a kid. I remember seeing like a production of Kiss Me Kate at the Oriental Theater <laughs> when I was when I was a kid. You know yeah, what yeah. I mean? I remember playing shows on that stage under a variety of different owners. Yeah, yeah. You know? Had a lot of changes. Ha- a ton of changes. Kind of like the Gothic Theater before right. Steve Schalk went in and redid it. Right. A lot of our bands played those rooms. Right. And one of the things, like... I can say for sure that the Oriental is my favorite venue in town. The only reason we don't play the Oriental more is because it's so huge and we have zero possibility of getting... Yeah, it's hard. It's a big space. It's a huge space. So it's like, even though I know I could hit you up and get the room, you know, far enough in advance, even though I know that I could hit you or Peter Orr up and... If I bid on five shows, I could probably get us on two or three of those five shows. It's really hard to get bodies into that room. And so, but, but all that being said, I love playing at the Oriental above any other, any other venue in town, especially since you guys have like done the, done the upgrades and, and, and yeah, the, the remodel. Better. Like you got, you've, you've, so tell me a little bit about how you end up becoming a part of that theater. Okay. Yeah. Tell me about that. Well, so yeah, I'd done a couple years at Herman's and I was just thinking, like, am I ready to do this again? Am I ready to do another place on my own? I'm not sure. And I just, I kind of got word from some people that the Oriental Theater needed some help or maybe it was for sale. Was this, now was this when uh there was that there was that period of time when all of us tried to work there right then that there was like six people who were trying to own the oriental like were you were you a part of that initially or did you no. come in after the fact like i came in after that and that's okay. probably why i came in 
Okay. So that's probably what it was. Is it had gone up for sale and I'm sure you heard about that, but then it was like really struggling and they were I knew it was for sale. I knew it had been for sale. I knew that someone bought it from the Three King guys. Right, because the Three Kings guys ran it for a little yeah, while. Yeah, and it, they had a hard time with it. Because it's a hard, understandably I mean, it's, so. Because it's a, it's, it's a hard, hard to sustain. Run. Yeah, I had gotten word that the place was in trouble, that there was some jokers trying to take it over. They Jerry cast, but no. <laughs> I just had heard that maybe that they were whatever current ownership it was under wasn't going to be able to pull it off. Right, just from some people I know. So I kind of worked my way in, didn't push my way in, but became available and worked a way to buy the theater with Scott LaBarbera. Okay. Okay. So now how, how long, because I just feel like Scott has always been Scott a owned, part of that place. Scott owned the theater before Three Kings and he sold it to Three Kings. Oh, and then got together with you and bought it back from them. More or less. More or less. Yeah, it's a much deeper, more crazier story. Right, I'm sure it's. I'm sure it's a story huge than long that. Story. There was some yeah. up, some upset people, and you know, but it all worked out the way it should. Right. And then so yeah, Scott and I kind of started operating the place again, and the only way I was able to do it is because Scott LaBarbera had great knowledge of that place, and he right. had, had strong knowledge of booking and knew the neighborhood, and he worked his ass off to get that place originated in the first place into, you know, the new Oriental Theater. Right. So, yeah, we just, we took our, you know, it took three years just just uh, even make a, a buck. Right. I mean, the place was hemorrhaging money. Oh, yeah. It was hard to keep the, the power on. It was hard to keep anything maintained. We leased our sound system from Brett Dowlin, um, and we could barely pay him. Well, and the ceiling collapsed. And at the ceiling one point collapsed while you were playing while with Doug I was Kershaw. With Doug Kershaw, right? And that would, which was just yet one more setback of the setbacks that we had at that theater. And right. you know, we were closed for three weeks. And if it wasn't for a contractor friend of mine, basically pushing job, putting jobs on hold, and coming in and you know building scaffolding and fixing that ceiling and letting us pay him off over four years right we made never would have opened up i mean the and, night the, and that, the calendar was dark a lot i remember that the calendar was dark but of course that period of time when after the ceiling fell we had this killer looking calendar which was gonna i mean it was always how are we gonna pay the rent this month right you know how are we gonna pay the bills i mean the nut on that place is no joke you know, it's a big right. 15,000 plus square foot place built in the early 1900s. And, right. You know, it just. It's an old ass building. It's an old building. It takes a lot of money. Like it was like an old vaudeville theater, right? It, yeah. And yeah, movies and everything. Right. So, the talkie pictures. Right. <laughs> yeah. So were you, were you an owner when like Jerry and Fatty and Tony and Ty and I were staying in the house on Tennyson yes. and we're like getting our power and our heat shut off and we're like going over and sleeping. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like green rooms and stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like sleeping in there on nights just so that we could stay warm and stuff yeah, like that's, that. Yeah. That's kind of, that's kind of when I came in. Yeah. That, that, that's just like. And that was a, that was a tough time for the theater. It was frustrating for, for everybody involved. Right. And but a place like that just takes a whole lot more than just a handful of people that really want it to with succeed. good intentions, right? Yeah, it just and it you know took us years to get all the right staff into place, and you know 
get a great manager to run the place and get real talent buyers to come in. I mean, I book bands and I book private events and films and tours and things like that, but I'm not a, you know, I'm not a professional talent buyer. Right. Well, like when Peter, when, when Peter Orr came in, that's like when you guys started getting like really huge shows. Like we were getting the big shows that you know of. Right. Before that, we had Mark Sundemeyer who was getting the big shows. Oh, that's shows right. That, yeah. Mark Sundemeyer. That, that these yeah. people Sorry. How could of. I forget? Yeah. And Mark did a stellar job for us. And yeah. He was, he's got a certain niche of bands and you know, like he brought Mickey Hart in, right? No, that was actually us. Um, oh, right on. Is that just from contacts that you had? That was through Jay Bianchi. Oh, through Jay Bianchi. Right yeah, on, and, yeah. And Jay also brought, you know, through a lot of great acts our way for you. It, it's taken an army of people right. to make it so that place can even be open right now. We do events with Swallow Hill, and they promote shows in the venue, which is s- stellar for us. AEG right. has promoted shows in the venue. Uh, Live Nation has done a few shows in in, in the theater. We rent the space to, you know, we've had to become very creative with our content. Right. You know, we're not just bands. We have to be everything. Yeah, film festivals and... Right, so we have the benefit community of this, events of this great movie screen and great projector. So we, yeah, we do these great film festivals, which are great in comedy shows and weddings and political fundraisers and neighborhood I've been fundraisers. been to a good Mortified show or two there. Yeah, it's Mortified, things like that. Yeah. What's Mortified? Oh, that's like that uh, spoken podcast. W- oh, the podcast. Yeah, 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 yeah where yeah. People, people get up and they tell stories. They, and just they read like, from their like high school journals. Oh, it's fucking yeah, great. Yeah. yeah, it is great. So it's it's that kind of creative content that has really been our success. Right. If we just thought we were going, you know, I never got into it thinking we were going to be doing stuff like that. Right. I thought it would, this was going to be just a total rock and roll venue. You just have to fill. You have to fill the calendar. But the best part about things like Mortified and all these, we do lots of big podcasts and all the best part is those are the easiest production days possible. <laughs> it's like four microphones. And yeah, no one's great. Right. I don't have the whole crew getting there at noon and, you know, setting up lights and cues and, you know, bring, you know, them touring bands, bringing their own board in and their own engineers and people just stepping all over the venue for an entire day and tour buses. Where are we going to park those right. and all this shit? We've got, these great events that make such a small footprint in production wise, but such a huge footprint fan wise. Right. And sell, you know, hundreds and hundreds of tickets. And sell podcasts lots of are just like huge for getting live audiences now, just like nationwide. They're it's massive. amazing. Yeah, it's, it's so amazing. cool. And we've done we've done just a ton of them. These ones, these podcasts that are just taken off. It's been great. Weddings and, you know, things for the neighborhood, you know, um, school fundraisers and you know, it, it, you know, we don't discriminate as long as it's a you know reasonable event. You know, you guys have done some of the um, the uh, the fish tour simulcasts too, right? Yeah. So years ago, you know, when we had a lot more open dates on the calendar, I found out fish would do these webcasts, these you know live streams. So I said, shit, let's try it. Right. So we, I think the first two or three we did. Uh, Three, four hundred people were showing up for these things. It was incredible. Just to watch, just to watch a live stream of, on the of huge a band screen point. with the big sound. Yeah, just to be among like-minded people. That's be so able, crazy. And then when Grateful Dead did their the, the Fare Thee Well tour with a lot of the original members got together. I think we did two nights of those, and those were like sellouts for live streams yeah. on a screen with a big system. Yeah, and it's been it was so great because it costs us so little for st- we don't charge anyone to come in. It's free. 
And oh, you got, I didn't know that. Yeah, for those kinds. So of you make things, it all off your bar business. All off the bar. And you've got the t- dude. Your bar is like the size of this this table. You yeah, know, we rip drinks out of it. Oh uh, yeah, I know you do. I mean, yeah. you know, we've got fast. We've got three to four bars in the venue, depending. Right, right, right. But the main, the I mean, like the main lobby bar is just like like really just small. Yeah, yeah the you size, guys, of, size of this room. Yeah, for but sure. I, fe- I always feel like that's why it works. Right. It's such a small space, small. You know short you know arm length to grab almost anything you need right and we pack three great people behind that bar and we just move fast because right. you know, we got to sell those drinks dude when it when so i've started doing one night a week at the other fire on the mountain location and they have a they have a two-person bar over there like it's a it's a bigger bar and the thing i don't like about it is i have to walk further to get stuff you yeah. know what I mean? Like at Herman's, I, I mean, I used to have to. Oh yeah. To, so when I asked for a Miller Light, and you got to rip to the other side, past three other bartenders, and it would take a bigger bar staff to manage one really. It's long like that bar. old arcade game Tapper. You know tapper, what I right? mean? Yeah, like, yeah. You got to run it's, up and it's down. It's so true. Bar. Yeah. Pour the pour the drop, put it down, take the money. You know. Go run over and go grab the thing and back and forth. We oh, talked. Yeah. Oh, we you know we stopped talking about it, but for years we were like, okay, we're gonna. We're going to build the bar in the venue, inside the venue, you know, half in the venue and half in the lobby. Oh, that'd be neat. It would be neat. But one super awesome thing about the theater is we've got this lobby. It's like a place of refuge. Right. So if you want to get away from the music, you've got this pretty substantial sized lobby to hang out in. It's a cool place to hang out, too. Yeah. And it's a good, like, one of the things I really like is that when whenever we've done a show... Like, even when we did the canceled Hank Von Hell show, we did okay. Like, for a local band bringing people in, you know, we did okay. Yeah, it was a good show. And the thing that I liked about that is, and and the thing that I've liked about a lot of the shows you do is you do the show, and you have the showroom, and you do all that stuff, and then you have, like, this reception area. Yes. Where there's not a ton of noise, and you're like... It's almost like it, it reminds me of like when I was a theater student and like you would do your play and then come out after the play and you're in the lobby afterwards and you're like doing the meet and greet yeah, and yep. shaking hands and talking. Well, it keeps people merch. in the venue too. Absolutely. Like, you, you know what I mean? It does keep people in the venue. Yeah. Um, and one other awesome thing is like it's it contains sometimes that loud bar noise and ruckus in the lobby so the venue can be it's just music right you know there's not big you know lights over this bar and people you know cash register sounds or people barking drink orders out yeah. I was at the Bluebird a few weeks ago and I love the Bluebird yeah it's a great theater um, but you're having to scream over whatever yeah. band is playing and I was there to see Yola and it was just incredible show if you haven't heard Lo- Yola mm. you need to get hip she is one of my favorites but so her opening act, a sold-out show, her opening act, um, can't remember her name, but she was playing the banjo. She's real quiet. And the bar was so loud. that, And I was in, near the back, and all you could hear was the bar the whole time. It was so distracting. But what are you going to do? Right, right, you right. You know, the bar is going to be loud. But I, and I was there with Scott LaBarbera, and I was like, man, this is so loud back here. Like that's one awesome thing about the theater is like, man, we got this separate space for the bar. So we scratched that idea. Right. Of, you know, we do so many films and comedy shows. You can't during a comedy show, man, it's 
comedy. <laughs> Dude, they had to shut down. They had to shut down the pinball machines at at Three Kings during the open mics just because people would come in. Some comics up there trying to work out material, and then you hear this like, gung, 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 yeah. I think that maybe, and I don't know, but Jones scoring. I've never seen uh, comedy shows at the Bluebird or Gothic. I'm sure they've had them, and and but. That would be really distracting. The comics on stage, and you know, you go to Paramount. The bar is out, and there's really substantial right. lobby. You sit down in your seat. You watch the show like you're expected. Like I saw David Cross there, and like people were yelling shit, and it stood out, and it was annoying. And you know, of course, David Cross. Where'd you see that? At the Paramount. Okay. And he knows how to work hecklers. You know what I mean? I bet he does. If it was at a place like the Bluebird Theater. You know, people would be yelling shit the whole time. No one's gonna. I mean, no one's gonna be quiet out there. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. And that is something that's really cool about the Oriental is, and you, you know, you go to a place like, let's say, like Larimer Lounge or like the old Bender's Tavern. You know, it's 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 a detriment having the showroom in another room. It but can be, something yeah. about the Oriental, it works. You know, it's like. It's not overbearing to hang out in the showroom. Like, it's it's just that perfect blend of, like, you can hang out, you can watch the show, you're not going to feel overwhelmed, it's not going to just, like, blow you out of the room. But you can also, you also have that refuge, like you said, where you can, like, go to the front of the building and hang out, and you can but, grab well, a drink and there's socialize. There's smaller bars there, too, you yeah, know. You can go to the back of the venue and go to that, you know, small bar right. over there to the to the right-hand side or whatever, mm-hmm. and, and we built a, a, we, a beer. We built a really awesome, legit bar on the balcony. Dude, I love the balcony there. Like, I wish that we could draw enough to fill that balcony just because that is like, like to fill the room and the balcony. Just yeah, it feels because. good playing on that stage when the main floor is packed and that it's <sighs> from a musician standpoint. I've oh, been able yeah. to do it a few times. And then, and as an owner, been able to like, walk up on that balcony now that we have the bar up there like I, it's kind of tiered up and I stand there and I can see the whole place and man it feels good it's cool you know? dude that's and awesome yeah. it's like I remember when we played with Ace Freely it was like man that show probably helped cement things with me and Sarah because we had like just started dating at that point then she came to the Ace Freely show and it's just like we're sitting up in the balcony you know watching the show and just sitting in those old, you know, velvet seats and and just relaxing and having this good time and like walking around and shaking hands. And you were a total rock star that night. Dude, it was a lot of fun. You know what I mean? So like that, like just something about the vibe of the place. It just really works. Something that just popped into my head. You remember that when we did the White Fudge gig for that? um, I mean, it was like medical weed had just happened. And White Fudge got offered that gig. Uh, it was some dispensary or something. It was some dispensary thing. It was a private event where they were allowed to smoke inside, and right. we're up on stage well, playing. Never allowed to smoke inside. <laughs> well, we were. The, the, we the people were turning a blind eye. Sure, of course. And they had the the crowd just had like dab rigs set up. And we're smoking, and I remember being on stage during that show and just looking out, and there's just like this haze, like fog on the moors, just like rolling in. And we would play, 
and hear almost nothing from the crowd. And we we're like, I don't, did we play like shit? What's going on? And then like go down off the stage and out into the crowd. And there's just these people with like bloodshot eyes, just like, hey man, that was amazing. You guys are so good. <laughs> hey, you were one of the guys on stage, right? That was, sounded I saw really you good. <laughs> Whoa, you were up there and now you're down here. What the fuck? <laughs> We did a, a lot of weed events back then. Oh, yeah. Because we weren't necessarily supposed to be, but it, no one cared. You guys... And you, it real, those helped us for a long time. You didn't have as much regulation as like a place like like an, like an AEG or Live Nation. Well, no anyway. one really did. The regulation didn't come to the legalization. Oh, yeah. So like, I'm not saying we were supposed to be doing it, but we did it. Right. You know, we had, you know, the... 420 events and we did you guys did a cannabis cup there too didn't you we did a cannabis cup and we did this bake-off thing where they brought these ovens on stage it was so stupid what? it was horrible it was the worst event ever but people <laughs> showed up the promoter totally ripped us on the rent um you know but once they legalized marijuana recreationally right all the rules changed and we got a letter in the mail right. basically saying if there's any smoking in the venue um, you know, you're in violation of your liquor license. What about that? Um, Colorado Clean Air. What about that event you did with um, Seth Rogen? Didn't you guys do some like right. legal smoke out event with Seth Rogen? So we did the world premiere of the movie The Interview. Right. Sony Pictures held it at the theater. Right. Um, it was supposed to be uh, in a bunch of different theaters all over the country. But Which is a cool thing that a lot of independent filmmakers are doing is they do like the movie tour. You know what I mean? Like Kevin Smith is uh, just did that with the new um, with the new Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back right, or right. whatever it yeah. was. You know, uh, Jay and Silent Bob reboot, whatever it is. You know, to like extend the life of of the release, they go on a tour of the movie. So it was supposed to be at multiple theaters around the country, and that didn't happen. Alamos. Um you know, and bigger, you know, bigger chains, AMC theaters and things like that. Right. But there was, it was a political thing. It was the, you know, the North Korea thing. And right. Because the, that's what the, that, that's what the movie was about. And so people, these theaters were worried that something bad could happen. Oh, really? Yeah. That was a legitimate so, concern. Yeah, so theaters were, were pulling out of this. Oh, I didn't know that. So somebody sent a tweet to Seth Rogen. Sony Pictures saying, Oriental Theater is not afraid of terrorists. Right. Come bring your film here, something like that. Right. And um, we, Sony Pictures called us up and rented the room. No and way. Yeah, so we had the, yeah, the, the, the world premiere, the only premiere showing of the interview. And Seth Rogen wow. came in. Wow. But his deal was, I want to smoke weed on stage. And we were like, you can't smoke, because this was like, very fresh we're like you can't we can't allow it he's like I don't care I'll pay the fine 10,000 20,000 I'll pay the fine and we're like man we get a fine now you pay it we're on the grid we're in trouble our license is at risk I mean, right this it's, is, it's, this it's is beyond just, that this it's is not a, not a good yeah, idea yeah it goes beyond just one yeah one infraction he doesn't care he's not seeing it that way he doesn't, right. he doesn't give a shit about us he wanted to do a show the way he wanted to do it and smoke in the green room well he ended up doing the show it was great a lot of people showed up he 
came up to me at the bar and give me give me a quick give me a bottle of tequila and I gave him rot gut tequila and he was walking around pouring it in people's mouths and it was fun <laughs> <laughs> I don't think the movie was very good I, mean, I remember I saw the interview it was okay it's definitely I, I not it was, it, it, was, it was it's not one of his best works right I say but I mean you know, you know. But it, but it's still I, I got it's, it's Seth Rogen and James Franco. You know, we it's, still have the big stand up, the the movie theater stand up in one of the. What was the what was the most rewarding event in your time as an owner of that theater? Like what was what was the event you were most proud of? Uh, maybe Leon Russell. Oh, that's right. You did Leon Russell. Yeah, short. We did, and it was shortly before he passed away. Right. Right. Yeah. We'd had him a couple times, and we actually had him on the books for, you know, the next year. But he had, did pass away. But yeah, that was because you're a big, you were a big fan at the time, massively on Russell fan. Yeah, um, he also played a lot with Doug Kershaw. Right. So I just always thought Leon was great. So that was like that was a that was one of those like this is a dream to have him here. It was just such right. a special night. And he was so good. That was just a. Such a stellar show. Ace Freely was another one of those. That was like childhood. Andy was like so stoked to have Ace Freely from Kiss here. I've, I've mentioned. I've probably I'm still mentioned. Sorry, it. I missed that. But Aaron's. All, he's almost convinced me that I, it's it's better just to have not been at that show. I would disagree. <laughs> no, 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 no. Here's okay. And I've I've maybe I gave the wrong impression because because it it was a bittersweet thing for me. On one hand. I was annoyed with the attitude. I was annoyed with him being kind of aloof. I didn't like the fact that he was charging $500 to sign your guitar. So it was a, yeah, it was a, a business thing on. more than a performance Oh, it's business. Thing. Right. Yeah, and and I, I, get, I, get that. I didn't like that we were barred from the backstage area and I didn't like that we didn't get to meet him and I and and I didn't like that we were playing on this like little one foot strip of stage and all of that annoyed me but I walked around and the cr- the fact that he neither he nor his band came out and the crowd was there and they wanted to meet somebody the crowd was super generous to us we sold a ton of merch we had a great performance. We made a lot of new fans at that yeah, you guys show. Killed it. We had a ton of fun. We got to play with a fucking rock and roll legend. Um, and probably the biggest thing that was redemptive for me was watching the show. I was standing there in the crowd watching him play all his Kiss stuff, all his Fraley's Comet stuff, all his. You know, like all his solo stuff, you know, everything from Detroit Rock City to back in the New York groove and and all these like he he played everything you could want to hear. It was one of his songs. And I'm like watching him play the lead to Detroit Rock City and the hair on the back of my neck is standing on end. And that I was like, you know what? There aren't a lot of people left over from those arena rock days and my experience has been is that many of them i won't say most but many of the people from that era are very bitter and resentful of what has happened to them yeah he feels like he got the short end of the stick right. with kiss and maybe deserved a lot of it he definitely got 
kind of screwed. Well, he he got ball. screwed, but he also brought a lot of it on him, on himself. Sure. And if you you know hear Paul Stanley and Gene Simmons, who I'm not you know fans of, but in their language, you know he squandered his gift is basically right, the way right, that they yeah. talk about Can it. it. Did you? Did, I can't remember. Did you read his book? You, Which one? I, well, I have <laughs> I have Me Inc. and I read like a quarter of Me Inc. and no, I no Ace Freely's book. Oh, Ace Freely's book. Yeah, no, I haven't read it's it. It's so fucking good. Is you it? really need to read no, it? No, and, and I mean that's the thing is it's like I walked away from it, and I'm sorry if I gave you the wrong impression of my experience, Gordo, because I what happened and what I intended to to convey was that I started out kind of rolling my eyes and feeling annoyed with the guy and thinking he was big timing everybody but then by the end of it uh, like enough positivity had come out of it and he you know I've gotten older and I've come to realize that these people are products of their time and if I was playing gigantic arenas and you know it's easy for us in the future to look back and be like well you should have seen it coming you know music cyclical and you know of course you're not going to be selling out arenas forever but you know they didn't and they didn't have the internet and rock and roll was pretty young at that point yeah it was rock and roll was only 20 years old at the point that kiss was touring the world and on fucking kids lunch boxes and shit and then he's playing a 700 seat theater in denver colorado while I'm running around in a fucking red banana hammock, you know, <laughs> acting like an asshole, you know. And he was. Yeah. He was good. And, if the, and, but if the show won you over in the end, then that's the only thing that's that matters. That's the thing. The show won yeah. me over in the end, and even much later on, you know, I was, um, and I think I've mentioned this before, when I, when I went on the Monsters Rock Cruise, I was a little... Um, I was a little bummed on the attitude of some of the people on the Monsters of Rock cruise, but I was also really inspired by the the handful of those entertainers who did not let it take the joy out of it for them. You know, people like Doro Pesht or um, Uli John Roth. You guys had Uli John Roth at the we theater. We did, yeah. He, and he was a... We had him twice, and he was like, we loved him. He was so cool. He Dude, hung out with us after the show. Uli is so cool. I got a picture with him, and you know, Sarah introduced me to the Scorpions albums that he was on, and like, I went to the Q and A that that he did, and I just was like. You know, I didn't even really know who he was before I went on that cruise. Yeah, I he's a cool dude. Not jaded. Super cool. Not jaded. Yeah. Kip Winger's another one who isn't jaded. Uh, Todd Latour from Queensryche was was a very sweet guy. Doro Pest, above all, was was probably the sweetest person that I met on that on that whole thing. That's cool. You know, um, my my mom and dad adore. Rick Allen from Def Leppard. They bought a few of his paintings. Like they've had dinner with him and just think he's a delightful man. Um, what's his name? Butch from Saxon. They adore him. You know, like, like there are some of there are some of them. You know, people like Sebastian Bach, for example, or you know Jason McMaster's from uh, Broken Teeth and Dangerous Toys was seemed a little bitter and jaded. You know, there's a handful of them who really, you can tell, feel disappointed and like they got ripped off a little bit. Yeah, I had heard that about uh, Sebastian Bach, but he came and put on a stellar show. That's right. You guys had him at the, the theater. Yeah, and the staff said he was great. and. Man, he gave it to the crowd, and they. I guess it. it just must be if he's like if he's drinking, it's just not super great. Because the experience that yeah, I had with I, him, he was I can super drunk. That. 
you know, and, but, but, you know, it all, all depends on the day you catch people. I try not to meet too many of these guys. I'm kind of, some, these days I just let my production staff deal with it. <laughs> There's a few people that I'm, I'd be stoked to meet. Right. So Ace was one of them. We you got him, to meet Ace. We had him twice, you know, we had Ace twice. Yeah. Both times, same deal, went in the tour bus. The, but the first time I was super stoked because I, I had stuff for him to sign. Right. Stuff from when I was a kid. Right. You know, I still have all my old Kiss stuff, my trading right. cards and fanzines and, you know, the action figures and the stage and the guitars. But I had some trading cards for him to sign, ones with a little pinhole because I used to put them on my wall. Yeah, yeah. So he, he was so cool. He signed everything. He's like, you own, I hear you're the owner. This is a great place. He was real nice. Wasn't like super endearing or anything, but he gave us his time on his bus. Right. And I thought that was really cool. His crew was really cool too. His crew was very complimentary of us. And, you know, his crew gave us business cards and they're like, hey, when things, when you guys get to the next level okay. and you need a crew, <laughs> You know, hit us up. Yeah, man, always looking for work because their job's temporary too. Right, exactly. And they, I mean, and they were super cool. And and I mean, he was charismatic as fuck on stage. And I also get it that we're the opening band. You know what I mean? And I've played with a lot of these guys where, you know, the last, the last thing they want after they get off stage, like we did. Um, I mentioned it before. We did the Dio Disciples show at at Herman's, right? And these are guys that used to share the stage with fucking Dio, Ronnie, yeah. And and you know, and they're playing at Herman's with again the guy running around in the red jumpsuit and the fucking. So were they cool? They slammed the door in our face when we came down to the green room and had us ejected from the green room. But oh, nice. <laughs> but oh, no. in all, and we didn't like it. But in all fairness, the last thing those guys want after they get off stage is for yeah, us I, to come at, down with our hands out just like, you know. Yeah, they don't want that. They don't want it. I understand that. I understand it. it it's disappointing, you know, and it's like. It's kind of like when I close the theater at night, when we close, and the band is still partying in the green room, we just want them to go. Yeah. I don't care who you are. Just beat it. <laughs> it's time to go. No, seriously. Like I know. We're tired. Like, you're cool. It's a great show. Pack it up and go. Yeah. We've been working all night. You should be wanting to do that too. Right. You know, green room curfews at midnight. Right. It's 1230. Right. Time to hit the, the bricks, road. buddy. Time to hit the bricks. Get in that sprinter and head on down the road. Oh, man. I, think, I, I don't know. I think that when you're, I don't know, when you're excited to play shows and you and you hook up with another band, you know, it's, uh, they have a different attitude about where they are and what they're doing. You know, it's, yeah, it can be rough. <laughs> it, it can, it can be a rough, you know, cause yeah. And that's, that's one of the main reasons I don't really, I'm not super big on meeting people that we play with sometimes, you know, it's just like, yeah, that's all right. There's, you maybe don't want to get disappointed or as you get a little older too, you just, you don't care quite as much. There are certain people in your life that are icons. Yeah. You gotta meet. Yeah. yeah, Todd Rundgren, Leon Russell. Those are guys oh, I wow. really wanted to meet. There's a lot of these younger bands that I totally dig, but I don't I don't care if I meet them. You right. know, Black Flag was you know, Jill Biafra there. Great. Those guys are super cool. They meant something to me when I was younger, but now I was just stoked they played and that was my experience. Well, yeah, I mean, you you still met Greg Ginn and everything, right? Right, yeah. And yeah. He, was, he was super nice. He was right. re- actually super accessible and actually went out and was talking to people at the end of the night that were outside smoking. You know. I get, you know, I mean, what a lot of it is, 
is it's when you're in a smaller band, especially a smaller band that's been working as long as we have, there's this part of you that is like Patton Oswalt has that bit about like the 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 girl who blows Michael Damien by the tilt a whirl and is like Michael Damien's gonna take me out of this town, Mom. You'll see. Like there's this when you <laughs> when you're in a smaller band, you have this fantasy of blowing Michael Damien. No, if, <laughs> when you, when you're in the smaller band and you're working real hard and you look up to these people who are these icons, these characters, there's this part of you that like has heard the stories about, oh yeah, we opened for so-and-so and they watched us and they went, you're pretty good. And they took yeah. us on the road and that, that was that the happened. beginning of the, right. Maybe and it did happen. Maybe it did happen. But like, like we had, um, when we had Andrew Novick on here, you know, he's talking about how like Gibby Haynes and the, and the butthole surfers are watching Warlock Pinchers and like becoming fans. Well, it's and Warlock like, Pinchers, right, right, right. I mean, it's I know. pretty special. I know, I know. They're they're pretty special. But but when you play with the band, there's that part of you that like is hoping that they'll see you and think these guys have something special. I'm going to do something for them. I'm gonna I'm gonna at the very least I'm gonna be like be like hey. Let's hang out. Let's talk. Let's let's talk about your your career. Let's just shoot the shit, you know. And you kind of want that to happen. You want them to think you're cool. Yeah, of course you do. And when they treat you like you're somewhere between the the guy outside trying to get enough money for a 40 and the dude who sweeps up at the end of the night like if they're they kind of put you somewhere between there as the opening act like that's that's hurtful really you're just on their stage in you know entangled in their gear right in their way right uh, just ready for you to go so they can get up and play and right. they can get on the bus right and go home. Right. Unless it, you can get them really good weed in Kansas, and then it's a completely different situation. <laughs> who, now, what, yeah, who, who did that ha- happen with? I don't who know if it? I should say. <laughs> now, you've said it on an episode before. Oh, I did? Yeah. It's Junior Brown. Oh, it was Junior Brown. But, yeah, cool. but he, he, yeah, he's like, we were all super stoked to be opening for him, my bluegrass band out there. And, and uh, <laughs> he just wouldn't, you know, wouldn't give us the time of day at all you know no 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 green room shenanigans nothing going on there barred from hanging out in there you know and then but then word came out that he was looking for something and we knew where to get it oh i know you know what story uh, it was is that you told the story about when mike Patton came through with some band it was like with mr bungle or something like that yeah yeah i was on mushrooms and you're like i've got an xlr cable at my house that was the most awkward meeting of one of the people that I looked up to most what in the opportunity. world. Yeah. Jesus. Oh, dude. He was in the back of an empty U-Haul truck, just like just a couple cables in his hand. And, just there. And I was just completely peeking on mushrooms. And I just wa- happened to walk by this U-Haul, like just a couple, you know, like um, just a few <laughs> doors down from the venue. And, and just like, you know, my buddy and I were like, was that Mike Patton in the back of that U-Haul? And like, so we kind of went back and like, Sure enough, he's just hanging out, like trying to find some cables, and you know, I was like, "Hey, man, what are you doing in there?" 
<laughs> it's like, uh, we're a 40 channel live band. We need more XLR cables. Like I've got XLR cables at my house, man. <laughs> and, he's like, and, and he's just like, yeah, I think we got it covered. Yeah, it's cool. cool. <laughs> you know, and then, and then my buddy's just like kind of pulling on my sleeve. He's like, like, how'd you he's get like, back here? Like, let's just, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Let's just get out of here, man. You know, it's like, it's, it's you like you you get tapped to go play with a legend like Doug Kershaw, right? Like it's like like that's a huge thing. You know, that's a that that that's a big deal. That's something that you can like put in your hat for the rest of your career. And it's like you end up playing with some of these bands and you're just hoping that they'll see you and consider you a contemporary and not that, just But that's not really why you're doing it i mean it's not why i'm doing it it's not the main reason for it but it's definitely something that like you know it's definitely something that i've hoped for yeah of course why wouldn't you want that but you do it because it gets your name on a cool bill right you know it looks good that you played with ace freely or all these steel panther all these awesome bands that you guys have played with that's good that's that's career boosting stuff. That's it's why resume you, builders. Resume builders. Right. That's why you do it for so little pay. That's why one reason the venues can get away with giving you so little pay. We can get to that too if you want. But, right. And you do it to get in front of a bunch of new people that would never come see MF Ruckus otherwise. Right. And then your current fans like get to see you open up for Steel Panther. I mean, it's bragging rights. It's right. Super right. cool. Right. And it is good for your career. Yeah. No, that I mean, and 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 shows like that. I mean, they were, they were huge, and I still pe- see people when, you know, we do when we do like another like support slot. They go, hey, I saw you guys with Steel Panther. I yeah, saw you guys huge. with Ace Freely, or I saw you guys with Dio Disciples, and just I just wanted to say thank you. Yeah, you know, still, I love your stuff. That, that feels really good. That man. means something. Like, that's even bigger. White you know Fudge I mean? has done all these. We've done a lot of these openers for these national acts, and half the time I think we. Slick Rick, and we blow him off the stage. Have you heard the bootleg of that show, by the way? No. Dude, I released it on the Ruckus page. Like, our set from that show is pretty fucking good. Yeah, that we, yeah I think we were good that James night. James Freeman recorded it. And Slick Rick really Ooh, wasn't very good. He was bad, man. It was really sad. I felt bad because, oh, no. like, yeah, it was really bad. It was, it was a massive... Um, well, kill. Oh, man. you know, he's he was touring because he needed the money. I mean, you know, you see those guys who are touring because they need the money. And I feel like nostalgia hip hop acts, they have an even harder time than like the nostalgia rock and roll acts. Like when we played with Naughty by Nature, it's like those guys at one point had like number one song after number one song on the radio like dude like being a rap star is like bigger than being a rock star by an order of magnitude like it is it is enormous you're talking about fucking like a car made of solid gold and just like like hot chicks all over you all like insane like uh uh just like opulence you know what I mean? Like, like a, a degree of wealth that is that is beyond one's imagination. Yeah, Gold you in your teeth. Yeah, dude. And and I mean, yeah. and then to have to play with White Fudge. You know what I mean? Like when we played with the Sugar Hill Gang. You right. know those guys were one of the like they 
they weren't they obviously weren't one of the first uh rap acts ever but they were definitely they're part of the founding they, fathers they, oh yeah, yeah. They, they, were, were they were a big right part of the beginning what, well and they brought it to the the mainstream they brought it to the to the major market you know, and they're playing the Oriental Theater with a bunch of fucking dorks, you know. dorky white dudes covered in tattoos, singing about their penises, and and hey, crowd liked it. Oh man, they had a good time. I was worried that that wasn't going to be the right fit. I've, I've never been worried before about one of our shows. I was on that one, and that one was that great. One was fun. People loved it. That was a blast. Well, we did a White Flash did a lot of those great shows. Yeah. And, Vanilla Ice. Vanilla Ice actually really did like us. Yeah. And we loved Jerry because Jerry ended up being Ice's hype man. And I th- think he was. He dressed like a clown, clown and, and sprayed and water everywhere. Water everywhere <laughs> you know. Well, Vanilla Ice, out of, like out of the you know handful of, of big time celebrities that, that we've met over the years, Vanilla Ice is definitely in the top five like friendliest people yeah, he that was we've cool. met. He was a very nice yeah, man. Yeah, he was nice. You know, I think he knows who he is. I think he's, you know, doing the shtick because it, it you know, pays him pretty well still. And he's got to do the thing. Uh, I think, didn't Garrett work for Vanilla Ice at one point? Your, your production manager? James from Martinez did. That's right. And then through James, Garrett did, did a number of shows with I. But, but he was living in Highlands Ranch. Oh, I didn't right. know that. So it, he was—he had that fix and flip TV show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rob's house or whatever it was called. Something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I think he was maybe living in one of the houses flipping, or he was just living in Highlands Ranch. So he was pretty accessible in Denver for a while. Mm-hmm. So that you know, period of time, he played a lot of shows. He's playing at Lodos, right? You know, <laughs> for the bros. I remember that he yeah. did at Lodos. Yeah, but I mean, they were like. Thousand people showing up, right? You know, they spending big money for one song. Right, but it was a great show. He remember he got up and played drums. Oh yeah, he was a, he was a great musician. He was he DJing was, too. He like got up and just did like some of his EDM shit. And he like and I, I don't, I don't remember Naughty by Nature being all that awesome. No, in in fact, it was a very poorly attended show. From it was from yeah. my recollection. Remember Ice? How packed it was. Oh yeah, you couldn't fit another person. It was completely sold that was out. A grizzly Rock. Yeah, short lived. Yeah, and then, very cool venue though. Yeah, they did a good job, and then yeah, Naughty by Nature was really, really poorly attended. Yeah, it was bad. I think that I think that show might have been part of what shut down the Grizzly Rock, you know, because it yeah. just, I'm sure their guarantee was enormous. Well, maybe ten, fifteen grand, but that could sink you if you don't got if you don't have right. to go. Right, it's a lot of money to lose. Yeah, we've man. lost a lot of money on shows. Yeah, you know, and then you know we have enough winners that they make up for those losers. Right, you know, but it's always it's always such a tight margin. Right for us with buying shows. I mean, we are not getting rich over there. Right. You know, we depend on ticket sales to pay the bands, and often we depend on bar sales to pay the bands. Right. You know, these tours are not cheap, and production is not cheap. There's so much staffing and advertising and, you know, behind-the-scenes costs to putting on a show. And just to be clear, you still have two day jobs, right? In addition to working the Oriental, no, like one, I own another company. Oh, okay. So you're not you're not you're not doing Comcast anymore. No, you're just doing. That's been six six years since I. I, see, I wasn't sure if you were or not because I just knew you were doing a lot of things. All I had at once. to. I've I've always had to do other. Jo- I did this Comcast gig for a while just so I could pay my mortgage while the theater was just trying. While you're I didn't trying to get want it off to, the I didn't want to draw a bunch of money out of the theater to support my life. Right. So I worked this day job and then worked this night job. And then 
got rid of that and I, you know, formed this other business that eventually is kind of running itself with crew, which makes me money. Installing so, windows? Is that what it is? Uh, it's a window cleaning company. Window cleaning. Oh. Which is better. Which, yeah. Because there's so much more work. And yeah, and I installed windows. That work fucking sucks. It's, yeah. <laughs> it, it's, hard, it's hard work, but I've got a, a good crew. So that's a stream of income coming in. Right. And I get out and I labor and I make money doing that. So it, it just goes to show these venue owners – for independent venues are not rich. I mean, there's this idea of like the venue owner just sitting there, like the suits up in the office, just like, yeah, yeah. you know, the Bill Graham's just up there smoking cigars and doing cocaine and taking all the money and shit like that. Yeah. But that's not, that's no, just not the th- case. That's not true. I mean, we've all, you know, the only people that don't have another job that work at the theater are a few of our head production guys, my general manager, because we, we need him that to be his sole job. So he gets a salary enough. Too, and he's uh, also a small part of the part owner of the theater partner because he's done such a rad job. We've given him part oh, of the wow. business, which is well deserved. Right, and you know he does all the hard stuff that I don't want to do it anymore. Right, that I did for years. So I operate this day business, and then I've got the theater at night. So it just goes to show, like that that margin is so thin. There's so left, so little left for salaries. Um, for any, you know, much extra. We're not getting, you know, huge bonuses to do this. Right. So I'm able to live because I have got a couple hustles and I play music and do some touring and local playing, making money playing music. So put all those together, it equates to one decent living. Real quick, I've been, a lot of the people that I, you know, a lot of the people that I've had coming on to the show and I, I, I haven't really talked to anyone who's, who's a venue owner and operator, especially an independent venue owner and operator uh, on the show. What are your thoughts on on the industry as it stands right now? Do you feel that the claims that the the market has been oversaturated and fewer people are going to shows and there's not as much money in it? Like, do you think that that claim is legitimate or do you feel like people are still going to shows? Like there's, there's still money in the industry that, that bands are still finding success in it or what, what has been your experience from the venue side? Like, have you oh, seen your bottom line decrease? No, the people are still going to shows. I mean, AEG just built this phenomenal mission ballroom. They didn't do it's it. So cool. They didn't do it because Denver is not stepping up and going to shows. They did it because right. this is a hot market. There's right. a lot of people here. There's a lot of people going out to see shows. I don't know where these people are coming from, but they're here and they're going to see all the shows. Every show at Red Rocks, which is almost every single day of the year, it seems, especially during the summer. Right. They sell out almost every single one of their shows. People are going to shows. They're selling out shows while I'm selling out a show, while the Bluebird's selling out a show, while the Mission's selling out a show, while the Fillmore might have a show. So what are independent musicians doing wrong? Like, what is the biggest? what are the biggest mistakes that you see independent bands making in the current market? Or is it just us? You can say that. <laughs> might just be you. Yeah. It's hard because... It is hard to be a local independent musician, especially doing original music. Like you said, like Ruckus is my, MF Ruckus is my favorite band in Denver. Thank you so Always much. Always has been, but you and know that because I've told you that a hundred times. By the way, um, I loved when you filled in for Logan. Yeah, that was, dude, that was That was a fucking play. riot. And uh, we had we had Reed from Speedwolf on here, and we were talking about like, 
you know, it was right after Parker left and Logan had the surgery and Reed lives in New York. So all he saw was Instagram posts that are like us on stage without Parker and without and, Logan. And this other dude. And, yeah. he hit, and he hit up Logan. He's like, <laughs> what happened? Oh He's God. like, you all fired everybody. Yeah, 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 right. I mean, people actually did at the show at were like, is are you the new bass player? No, no, no. no, no Logan's no. got this. I thing. mean, it, it was it was a riot. It was a lot of fun. It was basically it was basically a a ruckus, uh, um, legendary Eskimo Brothers hybrid show. Yeah, dude, it was super rad. It was, it was it was another one of those gigs where it came so easy for me. And those songs, they ain't easy. I was so impressed Logan's, by how Logan's quickly bass lines are. Like I gained, I've always liked Logan. I've always thought he was a great player. I especially realized how good he was when you guys did that Maiden thing. But listening to those albums in preparation for that gig, I knew I had such little time mm-hmm. that I, to, I was like, I don't got any time to chart. I know that. Right. Maybe I could make some really quick charts. And I also want to get up and play and I want to have fun and I want to be reading off charts. So right. I, when I was working or driving, you know, I was listening to those tunes and like really, I love the song so much. They were, you know, I've had to, I filled in for bands, um, done sub jobs where I was like, this sucks. It was so hard <laughs> to learn the music because right. I didn't like it. And it was even harder to like chart it teeth. because if I've charted, I got to sit, pause, rewind and I'm charting and, they, and I'm like, this is not a good use, way, use of my time because I'm not right. having fun. But listening to that ruckus stuff was su- made me super stoked. Thank you and so much. Playing on stage was great. It was a riot. Playing, yeah. with, to- playing with Tony and Ty is, is, is a fucking riot, dude. I mean, you guys are as good as many of these you know harder bands that we have to, and we do so many of these these bands that I've never heard of right. that are selling five, six, seven, eight hundred tickets I'm like who are these guys where mm-hmm. do they come from I'm getting hip to them and a lot of them I see them play live and I'm stoked on them I'm like this is great and I'm a new fan a lot of them I'm like I totally don't get it right. it came from SoundCloud <laughs> yeah dude I totally know. the SoundCloud right. bands so, so back to the question so what so, what what are the mistakes that you see independents making, and what are the things that you're seeing independents do that work? I got to be honest, I don't know. Don't know. I wish I had a. I wish I had an answer. I mean, I a lot are playing too much, right? Oversaturating the market, but I mean, maybe they're not. Maybe they. I, I mean, how are you going to get? How do you? How do you build fans? Right. Play just, open up for people for a hundred bucks. <laughs> maybe, yeah, maybe there's just so many great touring bands that come through Denver that any night of the week, like we could get online or open up the Westward if we wanted to the old fashioned way and see what's going on. I'm sure we could find something pretty cool to do tonight. Right. You know, Denver has grown and changed that much, and there's just so there's much. There's a show support. every night of the week. There's a show every night of the week, and like, I got to be honest, I haven't gone to check out a local band for a long time. Do you think it's? Do you think it's? Um, Bands aren't putting enough into marketing themselves. They're not putting enough into to promoting, or it's just it's it's just an uphill battle based upon the fact that it's hard to be a local band. I no think it's what. just an uphill battle. Right. I think a lot of these bands are putting out you know videos. They're you know release doing video releases. They're doing what seems to be all the right things. They're putting money in. Right. And they're promoting hard, and they're just still not drawing enough. We just did a record listening party at Bowman's on Friday night. It's one of the How most that go? It's one of the most successful things we've done. That's we've real. Sold, you sold, really pushed it hard. We too. sold a lot of records. Like awesome. I and we gave away a lot of free stuff and I, I spun records, got to play DJ. It was fun. It was I've just been, a fun party atmosphere. And it was That's more interactive idea. than a show almost, you know? I do like, feel like um 
we've talked about Facebook ads before and how shitty they were, but I think that they've gotten enough complaints oh, that they're yeah, starting to better. dial it in. Well, they've what seen they do, the, the people are organically just pushing, right. pushing, 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 pushing because you know that's all that's what you have to well, do. Well, what they used to do is like. All I've wanted to do is it's like, I just want to access our followers, right? So I would create an ad and it would be like, your audience is too specific. You know, it's too narrow. You won't reach as many people. But what they've changed is now they're like, they fill that in by automatically generating lookalike audiences. Right. Like, so it's like, you go, I want to focus on people who have engaged with my page in this certain area and they'll go okay here's all the people that have engaged with your people in this certain area and here are other people like the people that have engaged with it and we'll have to see with this run of shows we're doing coming up this weekend by the way four ruckus shows this weekend thursday night in uh thursday march 5th Surfside 7 in Fort Collins with Hail Satan and Hooked on Southern Speed. Bitchin'. Uh, Friday, March 6th in Colorado Springs with the fucking Nobodies. Rad. Awesome. And, dude, the first song we learned as the, a band was a Nobody song. That's amazing. Where are you playing at? Uh, Triple Nickel in Colorado Springs. Okay. So that's going to be fun. And the Born Readies are on that too. And then Saturday, March 8th. Or sorry, March seventh, Goose Town with Fast Goose Eddie Town with Fast Eddie and the Trade Ins, incredible. And I'm doing a double header because I'm going to play with Reptiles and Samurai for uh, a Purim Festival event. So like, like an early family, basically Jewish Mar- Mardi Gras. That's a rock and roll weekend, dude. And then Sunday the eighth, we're doing us and Granny Tweed are doing a daytime free all ages show at Chain Reaction Records. So what are you guys doing Unbelievable. Right? I mean, you're obviously well, doing something right. The, this is the thing that... People come into these shows. That's the thing. Um, we had a series of semi-disappointments uh, when we do that, did that Judah show at the Bluebird. It wasn't very well attended, especially for a band like Judah. Have you seen that band play before? No, I don't even know who they are. Dude, they are like... They are like the Italian Bay City Rollers f- mixed with like Turbo Negro a little bit. Like just like that four on the floor, like like bubblegum fist pumping rah rah rock and roll. Like super fun band. One of the most fun bands I've seen in a in a long, long time. So that added to it. But you know, that didn't really do really well and and we we uh, Who did, did did Judah not do well or did you guys feel like you didn't uh, I, well, we played earlier, and it was a little bit of a higher ticket than probably our crowd was would have liked to have paid. And there were a lot of people who showed up late to see Judah, and they were like, "Did you guys already play?" You know, the, the typical yeah, thing, whatever. Right, yeah. And but no, Judah didn't really get as many people out as as one might have liked. Um, but the last couple Lost Lake shows that we did, um, you know, only drew 50, 60 people. And I was really, you know, so we had kind of a streak of semi-defeats. And I love Lost Lake. And like I said, I love Tony Mason. He's, he's fucking awesome. And I love the bands that we played with. And I was trying to figure out what it was where we were having trouble getting people out. And I don't know if it's just oversaturation or, or poor marketing on our part or, or the location. I thought that might be part of it. Just our crowd doesn't want to go there. Yeah, they're or whatever. used to that place. I, I, I don't know what it was. But... So that's the thing is is I've at least had the illusion 
And I'm sure my own mental state has helped to alter my perceptions of that illusion that that our our audience is is diminished or that our our likability has slipped in some way or we've gone stale in some way. I don't know. But um, these upcoming shows that we're getting ready to do, it seems like um, it seems like we're starting to get some traction and we're starting to get some interest. But I have also uh, I've seen very few bands locally really put their nose to the grindstone in the marketing department. And I, I and I'm not talking about our shows. I mean across the board. No, you're right. You know, you see your handful of like high dive bands seem to do a good job. You know, or maybe it's just high dive or maybe it's just like the 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 fact that the location is a great place to get people in there for music. Um I haven't been to a Three Kings show in a while, but I remember when I was at Three Kings, we did that Three Kings anniversary show and fucking packed the place out. You know, it was enormous. And I just I don't know, like observations that I've made is that it's just harder to get people motivated to go out to see local music. Yeah, maybe so. Yeah, I don't know. We have to, I mean, we have to work our asses off to get the word out about shows and we spend a lot of money on it. Right. What have you guys been doing um, in terms of online marketing that's worked really well for you? What's performed best for you? Well, we've got a marketing person. Right. We've uh, someone, she just started with us recently, but we had, uh, we've had a couple the last three years, and I mean, we spend anywhere from five hundred to a thousand a show on a national show. Wow, we spend yeah. re- real money on it. I mean, you have to build it into the budget, you know. Right. Yep, it's in the budget, and we spend it. A lot of venues have that thousand in the budget, and you know they're only spending two hundred, but still charging you that in the back right. end. I mean, I think we're really putting a good effort out. I think that, that I mean, our marketing person is so creative. She, of course, Facebook, Instagram, things like that, but not just Facebook. I mean, you'll see our ads pop up on YouTube, you know, as you're watching videos, or sometimes when you're on Facebook and you're watching videos between videos, Mm -hmm. you'll see our ads pop up. Sometimes you'll see them on, you know, like uh, Fox 31 Denver news feed, you'll see our ads pop up. So they're finding, she's finding really creative ways to put the word on the street. You know, we occasionally do radio when it's fitting, but not a whole lot. Obviously, we do Westwood. You guys bought an ad for um, Hell's Bells when you had Hell's Bells at the theater. Right. We were doing Hell's Bells. For Hell's Bells, I always bought a radio ad because that seemed to work. Um, We don't really do too many radio ads. It just doesn't seem to fit our our demographic. Um, Yeah, they're just finding really creative ways and spending real money on it. Mm -hmm. And it seems to be working. And, of course, the Westward, which doesn't have as much of a – foothold or doesn't have as much strength as it used to have. It used to really depend on the Westward. Yeah, I knew the Westward was slipping when they gave me a full-page interview. (laughs) (laughs) How do you like that, huh? I mean... No, that was awesome. I'm joking, of course. Shout out to Oakland Childers. Thank you so much for the interview. If it wasn't for weed ads and things like that. Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I I mean, Prince just hard, you know. Prince hard. And Westward, we depended on Westward for many, many years. Now we utilize it and still like it and respect it, but I, it know, used to be that's where such. That's not where we're putting our money. It used to be such a big deal to see your name in see the your Westward. Name in the Westward. He, I mean, I mean, it's still it's still a big deal as a local musician. Still a huge deal. But like, I remember when I first started out, and you'd look at those show listings and you'd see your show for you'd like cut it out. Yeah. Oh yeah, 
I say I I used to. I don't anymore. But you know, if we're like opening, you know, the business and brain failure at the Bluebird Fe- Theater, and you see fourth year freshman underneath that, I'd be like, ah, and I'd cut that out and keep it. You know, that was such a huge deal. Yeah. So I've been I've had the theater now for for ten years. I've been there, and I remember, you know, years and years ago, if you, a band didn't get in the listing. We either ran out of room or we messed up. Right. Would, shit. I mean, they get so upset, freak out. And, and they would, and if they had a small draw, they would attribute their small draw to, to the to fact that their name not wasn't in the westward. I'm like, yeah, right. right. Give me a break. Right. Uh, hey, Gordo, what what are we at time wise, man? I think we've been going forever. Uh, we are. Yeah, we're rolling up on three hours here. Okay. Cool. Um, Got another hour? Uh, yeah, right. Dude, I mean, the truth is, Andy, I could talk to you all night, man. You've been a good friend of mine for a long time, and we never get to Likewise. see each other because, you know, we don't really do much with White Fudge. March 14th, yes. Three Kings Tavern. Josh Finley's birthday. Yeah, Josh Finley's birthday with Arroyo and uh, the Dirty Femmes. One of my other bands. Yeah, so you're That's doing gonna double That's going to be do- a badass show. It's going to be a great be show. This was handpicked by Josh Finley, you know, his band, and then two that I happen to be in, but bands that he likes a lot. Well, support, he, I mean, so. he respects the shit out of you, you know, well, I mean, likewise. Yeah. And, and, um, but I mean, man, it's, it's, we don't get a lot of opportunities to sit down and shoot the shit like this, but you know, anytime that we've been dealing with band business stuff and you and I, and you and I need to talk about something on the phone, we end up on the phone for a fucking half hour, man. Yeah. And I think like, that you and I uh, see a lot of things eye to eye and when absolutely. we don't, you know, we usually work it through pretty quick and yeah. get stuff figured out but you, you know I don't it, think we've ever like barked at each other or anything I don't think we've ever had like no, a I fight, barked fight. At you. I probably barked at you a few times <laughs> I don't know if Possibly. you really barked at me yeah maybe who knows I, yeah. I, if you have I don't remember it's right. it's obscured by with nothing but pleasant memories and likewise and, and I love the shit out of you man um, before we wrap up here I want to give a shout out to our sponsors first and foremost our most venerable nay venereal sponsor Matula Plumbing Machula! Shit rolls downhill. Don't be at the bottom. Your number one, your number two is our number one priority. Your shit is our bread and butter. Angie's List Super Service Award winner back in 2011. One one is the only one that matters. He'll wear the booties for you. Jerry Matula, if you got poo-poo problems in the Chicago area, hit up my man Jerry. Poo-poo platter. Uh, TheNugNation.com. This podcast comes out of the Nug Nation studios at an undisclosed location in the Rhino District of Denver, Colorado. See the Nugs and all their wacky adventures through the town of Nugville. Uh, man, check it out. TheNugNation.com. Mutiny Information Cafe. Uh-huh. Hey, you're wearing your mutiny hoodie. That's fucking awesome. Uh, this is a mutiny transmission. Uh, mutiny Information Cafe is everything. Books, records. The lo- No one has a larger ter- selection of Torini syrups. No, no one. one. And it's the, it is the coolest bookstore yeah. in town. And it probably that I've been to anywhere. Yeah. Live events, podcasts. Pinball. Pinball. They do everything. In fact, before we got on the air, uh, Jim Norris hit me up about using balls of steel in a mutiny ad. I assume it's going to be a pinball ad. So I sent him an unreleased studio version of balls of steel that we that we never put out, and they're going to use it for that ad. So shout out to mutiny. Uh, let's see. What else? What else? What else? What else? Oh, Flipside Music on South Acoma Street here in Denver. The largest selection of effects pedals in the region. A uh, very cool place to buy and try out equipment. Get your guitar repaired. Uh, I got my guitar appraised there. The did you day. really? I had a, an appraisal. 
Dude, I I really hope that they keep growing, man, because it is it is a very cool place and and uh, and uh, also they have a YouTube channel where they do their what the fact uh, series, which is very cool. What the FAQ? What the FAQ? Um, go down, check them out. Tell Ike the boys sent you. Uh, let's see, Rocket Space Rehearsal Studios here in the Rhino District of Denver, Colorado. Hourly re- uh, rehearsal spaces, fully equipped. Uh, we've rehearsed there a timer. We have. The 200. Um, man, just friendly staff, really great stuff, clean, nice, uh, and affordable. And the uh, best part is it's Rocket Space, so you ain't got to carry shit. Um... Evergroove Studio. Hey, we got Ethan Klein from Evergroove in the house. Say We're going to hey. be stay tuned. Hi. Stay t- up, guys. <laughs> stay tuned for a whole lot of live stuff coming out of the studio this week as we work on uh, the follow-up to the album we're getting ready to release that we recorded at Evergroove. We're uh, getting ready to do close to 20 new songs out of there, and they're all really fucking cool. And uh, we're pumped on it. So stay tuned for uh, stay tuned for a bunch of content coming out of Evergroove this weekend. And uh, go to evergroove.com and hit them up about your next project. And it's, Tony Lee's guitar tone is going to be so sweet. Oh, it's going to be so sweet. I can't fucking wait. Thanks for loaning us that guitar, by the way. <laughs> Tony just needs to bring a guitar out here and leave it here. It's like we're... Well, he has like, you know, everywhere he lives, he has these, his walls are adorned with these guitars. There's just tons of them. I know. And I'm like, wait, really? You can't just, you, I, I don't know. It seems like he could have vacation guitars. You Dude, know, they, you, you, vaca- or the, you, people have timeshares, like timeshare guitar. Leave, leave, leave a couple here. One Dude, of my amps is in the... It is. The warehouse it is at the store. I just saw when I was coming in. I'm assuming, so I, don't, I shouldn't take that tonight. I'm assuming that he's going to use that. Is it the PV Bandit? Yeah, it's a PV. He likes oh, it. Oh, the and PV Bandit. It's You're actually, the owner of the PV it's Bandit? It's not a Bandit. The Bandit's the little guy. It's the PV Renown. And that thing <laughs> freaking screams. Dude, it screams shit. in it. It's a workman's amp. It gets it fucking done, dude. Yeah. I, I mean... Here's he could thi- sound good through a fucking tin Dude, can. Dude, Tony it is matter. like it's Tony Lee. Lee. He's the best good, the best guitar player I know, and who gives zero fucks about gear. Dude, he's like, we were getting ready to play with Blue Oyster Cult, and he was like ready to use my kid's ukulele for that fucking show. And yeah, I like, he'd make it sound good. Though. Dude, last minute, I'm like, I can't. Gordo, do you remember what kind of guitar he was talking about using for that show? And I was just like, oh, he was going to use like the his Gretsch, his Gretsch hollow body. For like blue oyster culture, that's not very. It's cool. It, it's I mean, not it's rock and cool. roll. It, what, and I'm just like, yeah, he didn't. He needs an SG. Well, and know. it hasn't had any work done it, on it in a while. You know, it's like, you mean your Brian Setzer guitar that's been sitting there collecting dust and hasn't been tuned up or had new strings put on it forever? You're like, not the motherfucking Stray Cats. <laughs> He does. So, uh, he, he, not a lot of people know this, but Tony loves Brian Setzer. I know that. Yeah, Tony. Uh, t- I love like, Brian Setzer is unreal. He, he's a fucking ripper. He's yeah. incredible. Yeah, he's awesome. He shreds beyond. Uh, so yeah, look forward to a bunch of stuff coming out of Evergroove here soon. Um, have I forgotten anyone besides the patrons? I think you nailed them all. All right. Let's give a shout out real quick to the people who back us on patreon.com slash MF Ruckus. I'm really glad I'm starting to see that platform yeah. um, 
become a bit more popular. I'm seeing more and more people get on it. It's it's a really awesome way to support the artists that you love, and it makes it so that we can do the things we need to do to make, keep the ship afloat. We talked about ads earlier. I've taken a huge risk and and put our Patreon budget just into marketing to help us get people out to the shows. You know, I wouldn't be able to take that risk if we didn't have the support of the people who back us on Patreon. Uh, big shout out to um, some of the new people who have joined us, Max Sherman and Lisa Angel, who just jumped on this month. We fucking love you guys. Uh, if you want to get access to all the cool shit that we... Um, all the exclusive content and early releases and whatnots and and VIP parties with beer and food. Go to patreon.com slash mfruckus. Become a patron at any level. Uh, Andy, again, thank you so much for coming and sitting down and talking with it's me. It's fun, man. man. Uh, yeah, dude, it I would love really to have fun. you back again because I feel like... Yeah, we need to have a part two for sure. For sure. I want it... <laughs> I wanted to like, like I was thinking of all these stories and I wanted to tell Gordo about the podcasting nightmare I had this fucking last night. Which I still want to hear about. Oh my fucking God, dude. Okay, I, I'll, I'll tell it real quick. So the dream, like basically I woke up and that like I usually get up with the kid and then take a nap. Sarah was nice enough to let me sleep in. So I like woke up, she gets up with the baby and I went back to sleep and you know, your dreams when you are like just wait, like when you do the like the little shorter naps, your dreams are a lot more vivid because it's a shorter sleep cycle and you actually remember them. And I had this dream that I was doing a podcast and the subject was this guy, Johnny from this band Warner Drive that we played with one time, like a hundred fucking years ago. But it's one of those things where like the person in the dream is not the person that like they are in real life. And it's I'm a going facsimile. Right, right, right. And I'm going I'm going to this hotel and it's the daytime and we're gonna go up to his room and and Ethan's there and we're gonna set up the podcast and we're gonna set up all this nice equipment and all the microphones Ethan, and the Ethan cameras. Ethan was in your dream too. Ethan Klein was in the dream, yeah. <laughs> and and we're all like trying to set it up. And then I called the guy Johnny in, in my dream, first of all, and he goes or no, I called him Anthony. For some reason, he goes, not Anthony, Tony. And he was a 50-year-old Italian guy, which Johnny from Warner Drive is not in real life. And it starts out real simple. We're sitting at the table. He and I are talking. And then little by little, it just gets more complicated. And more people start coming in. And then a party starts happening. And then for some reason, Fonz is there. And then Ritz the rapper is there. And then the guy I'm supposed to be interviewing keeps getting more and more drunk. And he disappears. And he goes down to this giant banquet hall where a bunch of bros are all sitting around watching Scarface on a giant screen for some reason. And they're all getting wasted. And the room, the podcast room, is just getting filled up with more and more people. And Ethan and I keep like... Ethan and Gordo and I just keep like trying to move mics and cameras around the room to like follow this guy who keeps going to other places and like drunk girls are coming up and getting on the mic and talking into it. One girl gave me a pillow that had been filled with baby powder <laughs> and like for some reason she wanted to give it to me so I could like throw it at someone. So wow. there's this like Dreams are weird. baby powder going everywhere. But the, the whole thing, the nightmare was it just kept getting more and more complicated and out of control 
roll. And you're just trying to keep on top of it. <laughs> Dude, and Ethan, Ethan, through the whole dream, is not saying a word. He's just, like, moving mic stands and just, like, readjusting mics and putting them in front <laughs> of like people. He's like the boom operator <laughs> Dude, that's seriously. tortured and just, And it's like, just going into one room after another. And the guy that I was originally supposed to be interviewing is long gone, dude. Is it... Anyway, and I, like, at a certain point, I, like, realized I was dreaming, and I had to jerk myself out of fucking sleep. It does not sound very restful. No, it was awful, dude. <laughs> it was, like, it was like the worst possible scenario for trying to do a podcast. Anyway, the podcast nightmare, it was hilarious to me at the time it was going on. Uh, that is insane. Andy, we have a tradition on the show, which is, um, obviously, you know, this isn't going to happen on the live stream, but when we do the audio version later on, uh, we tag on to the end of every episode of One for the Homies shout out, which is where we give our guests the opportunity to give a shout out to a friend of theirs, maybe a local band or an independent band that they think deserves a little extra love and just pick someone off the top of your head and we'll throw a song on theirs on the end of the episode for people to listen to while they're searching for their next podcast to listen to. I'm, I'm going to say Blind Staggers. Blind Staggers. Dude, that new album is new so fucking rad. good. By the way, if you have not heard the Blind Staggers new album, Doing All Right, considering, you need to go on Spotify or Apple Music or wherever you, you get, get podcasts. Get on YouTube, see their new video. Get on YouTube, see their new video that yeah. John Skabicki did on a fucking iPhone. Yeah. Seriously, that is unbelievable. It it's is so good. so good. That album is incredible. It is so fucking good. And I wish I had the budget to put it out on vinyl. That's what I really want to do. That's dude, that's the thing that I really want to do this year if I could. Dude, if if that album with the marketing that they're putting into it with with how good the songs are on it, if that doesn't take them to the le- next level, there is no fucking justice in the world, I dude. Agree. That is such a good goddamn record. In fact, I'd be tempted to put the entire new Blind Staggers album on the end of the podcast just because it's so fucking good. That grandma song? Dude, grandma is my favorite song on the album. Like, that song makes me cry every time I hear Laura sing it. It's it's amazing. The performances are fucking unbelievable on it. If, if the blind great sta- live, oh, killer live, which they, is a bunch of great players. They just did a release show um, Saturday night. At I the, watched a bunch of live. Nini was posting live feeds, live yeah. feeds so I was watching it every chance Dude, I could. Maritza, Dave, and Maybe, Nini yeah. were all, all three were, posting yeah. at the same time. So there was lots of options. <laughs> yeah, man. Decent audio, shitty audio, decent footage, but it was great. Yeah. The, the it was so good. Was amazing. And um, I'm just, I. I sent a text message to all of them before the show, like a group text to everyone in the band, just letting them know I am, and and I and I want to go on the record saying this live to the internet, whoever's watching. I am so fucking proud of you guys. That is, that is the best album I've heard in a long time, man. And I'm I'm glad you said it because because I I I didn't even think about doing that, but man, that's a that's a perfect one for the homies shout out. So we're gonna give a one for the homies shout out. To uh, to the Blind Staggers out of Chicago, featuring our very own Tony Lee on guitar, and Damien, and Shrek, and Laura, and Tiny. We fucking love you guys, and we're super proud of you. Come see us at one or all of the four shows we're doing in Colorado this weekend, uh, and help us pay for our new record, which uh, will be pretty good, but there's no way it'll be as good as that fucking Blind Staggers album. <laughs> Anyway, um, thank you very much. This has been episode number 96 
Getting close to that triple digits, man. Rolling up. Rolling, Rolling right up fast. Up. Thanks very much to our guest, Andy Burkaw. Dude, thank you so much. Ma'am, uh, this has been the motherfucking podcast. I'm Aaron Howell. I'm Gordo. And we'll catch you next time, guys. Bye-bye.
You're listening to a Mutiny Transmission. You can find more podcasts, videos, books, comics, and records online at mutinyinfocafe.com. Or just stop in the store in Denver and have a coffee sometime. That's how you podcast!